Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, September 23rd, 843-661-0937 is our number. That's the only thing we consistently do every day on this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. There's this this traditional and um, routine-ish way we introduce mm-hmm. um, the show. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Congratulations to producer Freehold. Mm-hmm. His Phillies uh, won a game last night between the Braves. And I'll tell you, the Braves just look to be dead-legged. But I mean, they look like they're just at a, I don't know, we want, we want this thing to be over. Um, I cannot deny. We're enduring, you know, the end of the season. Yep. They're in a hotly contested pennant chase. You'd like to see the team score more than five runs in three games. Because I can tell you, in a hotly contested pennant race, you ain't making up ground if you score five runs in three games. But the Phillies pitching, I mean, I didn't watch it. I was watching the football game last night, Coastal and Georgia State. And I'll jump around here. Um for Gamecock fans who don't believe things could be any worse in the last five years than they have been, we could have played Coastal three times. <laughs> Think of that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how would it feel Makes to be a good point? How would it feel to be one and two at best against Coastal Carolina in the past five years? Coastal has arrived. I mean, they are. Um, here's an interesting question. Uh, I sound like an SEC homer here. How many ACC teams are clearly better than Coastal Carolina in football? But I think that's an interesting question. Clemson is. Um, is anybody else clearly better than Coastal mm. in the ACC in college football? I mean, Clemson's clearly better yeah. than anybody in the ACC. Anybody, clearly better than say. Coastal. Clearly better than South Carolina. Is anybody in the ACC clearly better? Florida State, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. We, the jury's out. They've yeah. had their struggles, and they Not appear sure. to be a little bit better than they have been. I think Norville does a good job, and, and we'll turn that ship around. Miami. There you go. Miami would be clearly better, I think, than uh, Coastal Carolina. Is anybody else better? Clearly. I'm talking about uh, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's a pretty good team. Uh, are they clearly better than Coastal? I'll say it. I'm on the record. Here's how I know you. I'm not being kind of a Fairweather fan here. Coastal's better than South Carolina. I mean, today in college football, and I'm not talking about this to year. For the past three years, Coastal Carolina has had a better football team in the state uh excuse me, then South Carolina. Therefore, they have been the second best football team in the state of South Carolina for at least three consecutive years. And um, microphone out of the way. We always knew we'd probably head to a better version of football at Coastal when they made the commitment. Um, My question is this, and I don't know because I'm not up close and personal to the Coastal program. How important is Joe Moglia in all of this? I'm the, the real wealthy guy that wanted to be a coach, um, they replaced David Bennett, good friend of mine. David was the first, uh, the inaugural coach at Coastal Carolina. Um, they believed, well, we can debate this, but they believed David had a good run, but carried them about as far as he could. And they were in transition to try and become a, a more respected program, a more noted program. Uh, they took a chance and hired a guy named Joe Moglia, wildly successful in the business world. And, um, and that experiment has I've been a grand slam. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And as a loyal, you know, I mean, I I put something on Facebook a while back. You know, this is my 50th year of attending football games at Williams-Brice Stadium in Columbia. I always thought we were the second best team in the state. Sometimes we were the first best. The Spurrier years, I mean, I think the Gamecocks were a little bit better than Clemson during that five-year winning spell. I mean, not, not a lot better. I don't think South Carolina's ever been a lot better than Clemson. But in those five years, I think we were a little bit better than the than the Tigers, and I think it was personnel. I mean, it was you know Gilmore and Jeffrey and Clowney and Ingram and all those players. But um, but I've never felt relegated 
to the third best team in our state. And I'm as loyal to Gamecock as there is, and I ain't turning my Gamecock club credentials in just yet. But Coastal is a better football program. Listen to what I said. I mean, they're, they're, they're not more affluent. They're, they're, they don't have the pedigree. I mean, the Gamecocks are in the SEC. They're always associated with a premier football conference in America. But when somebody says, man, what else could have gone wrong with Gamecock football for the past five years, we could have played Coastal three years <laughs> and probably be 0-3, uh, if not 1-2. and two. So, yeah, for 50 years, I've been accustomed to being the second-best team in the state. I mean, it infuriates me. I don't like it, but I'm the mayor of Realville. And, and now it looks to me like after watching Coastal play last night that South Carolina is the third-best football team in this state. And Beamer's trying to change it, get better players, and they should be better. I mean, if they get some things right, they should be, um, I don't want to say back in the saddle because they don't spend a lot of time in the saddle if you're a Gamecock football fan. But the the resources and assets and um, ability to be good should outpace Coastal if Beamer hires good assistants and they kind of get on one of these. I mean, it doesn't have to be a great run, just a, a little bit better than average run. I think they'll reestablish themselves. Here's the question I have a Clemson. And, and here, let's do this real quick. In the 9 o'clock hour, remember, it's kind of a um, decompression hour. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Looking um, forward Chris, to it. Chris Clark of Gamecock Central will be with us at about 9.05 this morning. Jason Priester of all Clemson. Or is it, yeah, what is it, Clemson? It's it's Tiger it's Sports Illustrated. Uh, what is it called? Clemson now? All Clemson? Uh, anyway, it's the... Um, it would be the um, the the peer to Gamecock Central. I think it's all Clemson or Clemson. Um, but it's, it's it associated up. with Sports Illustrated. Yep. Uh, I can't remember exactly what Jason called it, but Jason and I texted a little bit yesterday, and he's going to come in at around 9.30. We'll preview the Wake Forest-Clemson game. Um, Clemson is only a one-score favorite in that game at Winston-Salem. Uh, I don't want to go too far down that road. But um, anyway, it should be interesting to watch, uh, excuse me, to listen to what uh, Chris has to say about the Gamecocks. And what Jason has to say about Clemson, that is in the 9 o'clock hour. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Roger and Coward. Hey, Roger. Well, good morning, folks. You know, I'm always up early, so if you're talking about uh, sports, uh, when you talk to your guy at Carolina today, uh, I know you've got some influence over there in Columbia. Uh, haven't heard anything from you need to issue that challenge I gave the other morning for Dawn Staley. I haven't heard anything from Carolina about that at all. I've been reading, but just total silence coming out of Columbia. It's embarrassing, Roger. I mean, it's embarrassing that the university has not issued an official apology to BYU. I mean, I, I am a Gamecock fan, but I am embarrassed that the university has not issued a formal and official apology, not for Don Staley. Don does what Don does, but on behalf of the University of South Carolina. Well, I can tell you this. I spent one year uh, in – I coached – varsity girls basketball at Woodruff for one year and I worked under Willie Varner. You've heard of Willie Varner. Sure. You? <laughs> you know, he was tough and I've heard him I, and I'm quoting Willie Varner right now. I heard him telling the coach one day outside, Don Staley needs to work for Willie Varner to have worked for Willie Varner. Cause I heard him telling a coach one day, I make the damn schedule. You just show up and play it. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, and some coaches need to be dealt that way. No, no question about it. Thank that, you, Rod. That's, exa- well, that's keep- exactly what he said. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. Th- thanks, Roger. Appreciate that. Let me cut him off there. He might have had some more uh, whatever to say. But um, uh, Roger would never probably admit to this, but he was my coach at one point in time. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of baseball, a little bit of football um, back in the day. 
as a uh, had a Pamplico Red Raider. But but yeah, I mean I, I am I, I'm I continue to be amazed, bothered, embarrassed, frustrated by the university's radio silence. There's not been a single apology issued. Not I mean Dawn can be Dawn. I mean she's got her brand so to speak. Air quotes already here at six fifteen. This morning, Dawn's got her brand, and she protects her brand. As I'm concerned, she's earned her right to say what she wants to say. But she hadn't earned the right to be dishonest. Oh, oh, no way. She hadn't earned the right to tell a lie. She can say anything she wants to say. Well, I mean, she can. You know, and she's a really good, and I think Roger would agree to this. But the Clemson, I'm sorry, I was looking this up. It was Clemson Sports Illustrated is what uh, I see listed as uh, Jason's. Clemson Sports Illustrated. Good deal. Anyway, back to that. I think she could say what she wants to say, but obviously the university can't let that stand. Well, apparently they can. I mean, is well, she speaking for the university now? Well, I guess she is. Nobody else is. I mean, Don't, don't made That's a, the crazy part Don't cancel the game. Don't said when given the opportunity, I stand by my investigation, and that is the only remarks made publicly by the University of South Carolina. That's shameful. That's embarrassing. That's, to me, somebody not being responsible enough to be in the job they have. Now, whose job is that? I'll let you debate. Is it some member of the board of trustees? Is it the president? Is it the athletics director? It ain't me. I mean, it's not the men's basketball coach. It's not Shane Beamer. It's not the guy serving hot dogs in the West Upper Deck. Somebody in that university deserve or, or owes BYU and the public, for that matter, a formal, um, not, not an explanation, but an apology. We've got an explanation now that there was a, a, a report. There was a rumor that something happened. Don't accepted that rumor as true. She reacted by canceling a ball game on a rumor that was not corroborated, not substantiated, and is proven to be untrue. When given the opportunity to say, hey, are we going to reschedule the game or not? Don said, and I quote, I stick by my investigation and original decision, and nobody in that university has the guts, the gumption, the fortitude, the decency to apologize on behalf of the university, Don Staley is employed by to BYU, its fan base, and the sports world in general. So, so to Roger's point, I mean, I don't have any influence. I have a lot of connections, a lot of friends. I have several friends on the board, several friends within the administration of the athletics department. Um, I dare say I, I consider Ray Tanner to be a friend. I mean, Ray and I have spoken multiple times about issues regarding South Carolina athletics. I find Ray to be a very decent and honorable man. But but somebody dropped the ball here. So somebody really, really dropped the ball here, and it's frustrating. And, and to me, it's embarrassing to know that a female women's basketball coach um, has the ability to say something that inaccurate and not be held accountable. I mean, that's kind of bizarre to me that, you know, uh, are, are we a – it's kind of interesting. I'll, I'll give you a real quick conversation. You've heard this before, Rev. Um, five years ago, when South Carolina made a commitment – to make Dawn Staley the highest-paid female basketball coach in America, I told my buddies that had something to do with that, you're making a big mistake, you regret it one day. Well, what do you mean? Yeah, just trust me. Trust me. I, I can't say, you know, two plus two. Equal. I, don't, I don't know exactly why I'm saying this, but trust me. In several years, you'll regret making that big a mistake because to, 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 you really made her the biggest deal at the university. I mean, if you're an SCC school, the last thing you want is your female basketball coach being the most prominent figure within the athletics department. But as we speak this morning, Don Staley is still or is the most prominent figure 
on an SEC school's athletic department or within the SEC school, school's athletic And that's just, that can't stand. Who's the biggest deal at Clemson? I mean, it's Dabo. Who's the biggest deal at Alabama? It's Saban. Who's the biggest deal at Georgia? It's Kirby Smart. Uh, and if Shane were winning, I mean, if he were there several years and proven his, I mean, he'll quickly become the biggest deal because it's a college football world. But right now, the University of South Carolina trying to be good at college football has a problem. And the problem is, I hate to say this because it sounds weird, the prominence of its women's basketball team. And when, when, you, make, when you made that commitment to women's basketball, you, to that sort of personality, I, I just saw this train coming. And here we are. Um, it ain't coming. It's already here uh, and on time. Um, there are a lot of different things that we could talk about this morning. Uh, Rev and I had a meeting yesterday. And we discussed content and the variety of content. You know, where, where do we score the points? Where don't we? This morning, I have so many things. Um, I get bored with the, the week-long story. I mean, I just, I don't find it very, it's interesting, but it's not that interesting to spend a week talking about it. I'm going to pick on the, um, the, the, more, uh, the more influential brethren of talk radio. Um, there's a reason I can't listen to some of those guys, but for so long, and, and I refer to it as the drumbeat of talk radio. Um, you listen to some of these guys. I don't want to call names, but you listen to a person during the day on conservative talk radio at two o'clock on Monday, and you turn it back on at four o'clock on Friday, and it's the same issue or two. I understand super server. Rev gets frustrated with me. You got to understand, man, we don't have people, but for so long. So when you say something at 7 o'clock and you say it again at 9.30, ain't no big deal. But it's not repetitive. You're, you're talking to a the, the people that hear it at yeah, 9.30. You have to find a balance. Sure. Because you have some people that do listen. I mean, some rare people would listen all four hours. But most people listen on their drive time, maybe a little while they're getting ready and a little on the road. I mean, you but, know, but there's so many, okay, balance that. There, there's so many stories out there right now that I find far more interesting than the one or two political stories that that talk radio seems to center its world around. Um, I I saw a story yesterday. This is so interesting to me. Did you know that on any, at any given moment, on any given day, FedEx and UPS have 12% of our nation's GDP in its planes and in its trucks? I mean, think of (laughs) that for a second. At at any given moment, Wow. On any given day, UPS and Federal Express have 12% of our nation's GDP in a plane or on a truck going somewhere from somewhere else. Now, but that's a, that's a radio show in itself. Let's talk about, you know, shipping. Let's talk about the economy relating to shipping. Um, but, but these aren't stories because they're, you know, they're, they're not the super server. They're not... Uh, the red meat, but I just found that staggering. Read it in the Wall Street Journal and actually went back and confirmed it with a couple of other articles. But yeah, I mean, two companies, two logistics companies, big logistics companies, no doubt, but two logistics companies in the world today have 12% of our nation's GDP in a truck or in a plane right now driving or flying from point A to point B. That's a staggering statistic to me. I mean, that's a mind-boggling statistic so think about it right now how many boxes packages are americans shipping and waiting on or or, or waiting to have shipped how many of those right now are on a conveyor belt in a plane or on a truck going somewhere i can tell you 12 (laughs) percent of a 25 trillion dollar gross domestic product that's mind-boggling to someone 
who thinks he understands the elementaries of business. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Hey, Kitty. Yes, sir. You know what gets me, though? You know, sometimes when I feel like I might not be the smartest guy in the room, all you have to do is you listen to Hannity or Bongino or there's other two guys or whatever, and you listen to, the, you know, evidently there's a lot of stupid Republicans out there, too. Because those guys that call in, 80% of them are just flat stupid. Or either they call it in to kiss the guy's butt. But they don't even, they have no clue about the big picture or about any of this stuff. But one of the things I was thinking, you know, I think that, you know, you, you talk about these, you know, I would like to come up with a list of the things that these uh, fascist Democrats are doing. Like, I guess you saw that thing about how they're making money off of mutilating young children by changing their sexes. Did you see that old Tucker? Yeah, at the prestigious Vanderbilt School of Medicine. Okay, now whose policy is that? Is that a Republican? Is that, is that, are there Republicans behind that or Democrats? Oh, that's a liberal Democrat running Vanderbilt. Right. Well, exactly. And those are the people that are pushing it on Facebook and everything else. I would like to go through a list of all of those things. Everything from, do you like the idea that it's costing you, they're saying 13%, but I tell you it's probably closer to 18 or 20 that it's costing you that much more to live. And do you, do you, I mean, I would like to go through the time. If I were running for something, I would write down a list of every wacky thing that Joe Biden and the Democrats, fascist, communist Senate and House and everybody has done. And look at everything that's going on. You're just right. It could be. It, it would be a hundred pages, and that would be my whole campaign. You would not, like you say, you would not have to mention January 6th or Donald Trump or the election was rigged. All of that stuff's true, but you wouldn't even have to mention it. You just sit there and you ask the average voter. Ask the average voter in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, South Carolina, Georgia. I mean. There, there's not an African American I know that wouldn't that wouldn't call that stupid, unless they're on CNN. And I would just beat that and beat that and beat that. And look, man, I'm just a guy that daggone teaches people how to do bitch presses squats. And if I can figure that out, why can't somebody just get paid millions and millions of dollars to daggone on? that they're going to tell these candidates what to do, these Republican strategists, how come they can't do that? Just write it all down on a sheet of paper. It'll probably take three days, and you just head it out to every Republican candidate out there and say, you need to talk about all of these fat, crap, crazy things these fascist Democrats are doing, and just ask the people of your state, are you good with that? Now, you know, and, and go every, and attack the media, attack every, attack, 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 and don't stop attacking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, th- thank you, Breeze. And I, and I'll agree with that. I mean, I think attack strategy has to be the strategy forward. I mean, it's got to be counterpunch. Sometimes first punch. I mean, throw the first punch mm-hmm. in some of these battles. Yeah. The story Ron about DeSantis Vanderbilt is, is troubling. Example. Well, I mean, the story about Dr- Vanderbilt is even more troubling because a, a representative, a, le- a, a person in position of leadership at Vanderbilt basically says, this is the big moneymaker. I mean, this genital mutilation, um, these um, th- th- these breast removal surgeries. I mean, they, these are these are have. A, I, mean, I think her words were that they're very profitable, and we have a lot of follow up visits as a result of. Um, yeah, one of the most prestigious medical universities, of course. I mean, obviously in the South, maybe in America. Um, 
has a somewhat of a scandal going on in that we find out that they are encouraging, sponsoring, uh, paying for some of these gender transition surgeries of minor children. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Text Mondays to make Fridays 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Here is Bruno in Florence. Morning, Bruno. Good morning. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Dave. Morning. I tell you what, uh, Breeze, Breeze is, is uh, smarter than all all the news anchors on our cable TV because he's got it absolutely right. But the problem is you've got to have a unified, uh, unified party as – America firsters, and uh, you don't have that. And I, and I got Mitch, Mitch McConnell, who uh, pulls money, or doesn't even back Arizona candidate and and Oz and everybody else. So you'll 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 never have that support. Like uh, Democrats back each other, the the Republicans run run away from um, co- confrontation. And uh, that—that's all I got to say, and I'll—I'll I'll, I'll listen to what you have to say. Thank you, Bruno. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Axios reported yesterday that Mitch McConnell. Remember, he pulled half of the funding out of Arizona. He pulled the other piece of funding. About nine point six million dollars was to be spent beginning in October. That money is no longer going to be spent in Arizona on behalf of Blake Masters. Nine point six million dollars in television ads and support of Blake Masters as the Republican nominee. Um, I mean, it's—it's it's a tied race. I mean, the Masters, the polling has him down two or three within the margin of error, and it seems to be trending in his way. Um, but the GOP's, I guess, leading super PAC will not be spending any money in Arizona. Masters is being outspent by Kelly nine to one, is what I read yesterday in the Wall Street Journal. Um, I, I guess he's one of these Republicans who refused to kiss the ring because he has said publicly that if he goes to a Senate, and the Republicans get the majority. He's not supporting McConnell as the majority leader. And the main reason, he says, because he's 80. I mean, I just don't want an 80-year-old guy in charge of our, you know, our party and the, the future direction of our party. But, um, but he'd already canceled $8 million worth of ad buying that was to take place in September, and now it's $9.6 million. So, um, you know, I guess McConnell's choosing – you know, who he wants to win. Now, the Heritage Action for America did contribute through the Sentinel Fund $5 million, and Peter Thiel is hosting a fundraiser. I sent you something day before yesterday. Thiel's um, hosting a fundraiser at his Florida home um, on behalf of Blake Masters. I have no idea how much that will raise. I did see it's $1,100 a ticket and $11,000 a couple, but the couple, uh, if you buy a ticket or a couple, you get some sort of um, special treatment or experience or or whatever, um, and I don't know how that ex- I mean, that, that exceeds the federal. Uh, there, there's a limit to how much money you can give a candidate at the state, local, and federal level. And I don't know how the eleven grand per couple works around. I mean, I, they've got it figured out. I'm sure that a certain percentage will probably go directly to the candidate. A certain percentage will go to some political action committee on behalf of the candidate, or, or maybe the Florida GOP. I have no idea. They'll transfer funds uh, from one silo to another. But but Teal, I mean, Breeze is talking about, you know, having 25 or 30 things. You know, we just kind of establish where we stand on these particular issues. Teal has a pretty interesting view of what he believes. Now, once again, he's an intellect. I mean, he's a, he's a, a bright man who lives that extravagant life and, and doesn't think like normal people do. I mean, you and I are thinking about, you know, how do we get from here to there? And how do we get from today to tomorrow? And how do we, our financial lives, our family lives, our personal and, and professional lives, Teal's, I mean, I don't know that he fancies himself as a visionary 
but but I would argue that if you categorize anybody as a futurist, Teal and Elon Musk kind of fit that bill. I don't know exactly what it means. What is a futurist? I mean, that's somebody always almost consumed by what is out there, what's next, what what's what's even after the next. I mean, a lot of us consider ourselves to be somewhat visionary, but futurist is almost a visionary on steroids. And Teal and Musk, to me, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are others, but but those two are who I pay most attention to in what's down the pike that none of us have even thought well, about. And they're, and they're trying to change the future in a way. Well, I and mean, they're Musk trying to financially to travel, capitalize. Tra- travel to Mars. Sure. Right. And, and they're, they're trying to financially capitalize. I mean, those two guys came up with a way to pay online. You know, we, we were talking about yep. going online. They're figuring out a way to transact business online. So that's what I'm saying. Y- you and I were wondering about, okay, how do we get online? <laughs> They've already passed that. How do we get online? Now, how do we, how do we allow people to transact commerce online? That's to me the futurist. The visionary yep. says, hey, these personal computers could be a big deal. The futurist says, no, I'm sure the personal computer is going to be a big deal. And there will be a day that people want to buy things and sell things online and not disclose some of their private information. So can we create an entity that allows people to more easily transact business and transfer funds online? Teal was being interviewed at Stanford a couple of weeks ago and, and gave kind of an interesting, this kind of plays into breezes. What, what are we? Who are we? What are we about? In other words, we know what the liberal left is trying to do, fundamentally transform the country. What are we about? What should we be about? Now, now once again, this is a futurist take on where the, the Republican slash libertarian movement needs to head. The future that China represents is not a future that is, that is particularly desirable. I was, I was struck by this when I was in uh, Western Europe uh, a few months ago that uh, I think I think the future is something that always has to be thought of in relatively concrete terms and it has to be different from the present and only something that's different from the present and very concrete can have any sort of charismatic force and and looking at Western Europe I would say there are there are basically three plausible futures on offer number one is um, Islamic Sharia law and if you're a woman, you get to wear a burqa. Um, uh, number two is um, totalitarian AI uh, a la um, China, where um, the computers track you in everything you do all the time. Um, and that's kind of creepy, sort of the, 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 the eye of Sauron, to use the Lord of the Rings reference, right. watching you at all times. And then the third one is, um, is hyper-environmentalism, where, where you uh, drive an e-scooter and you you recycle, and uh, even though I'm not you know I'm not a radical environmentalist, um, I think if those are the three choices, you can understand why the green movement's winning, right. because the, those are the three visions of the future we have. Right. And uh, and the challenge, the challenge uh, on the conservative or libertarian side is is to offer something that's that's a picture of the future that's different from from these these two very dystopian and one somewhat stagnant one okay to to me that's the point i mean what what are we what are we offering independent voters what are we offering female voters now once again that's a bit out there but he's been right a lot more than he's been wrong i mean how many of us understand these dystopian philosophies he's talking about with you know ai technology i mean we kind of believe that now i mean recently uh the ceo of apple appeared before a senate subcommittee 
and was challenged, you know, does this phone, if I move from here to over there with Mr. Johnson, does this phone tell everybody that needs to know that I did move? And the guy wouldn't answer the question. So I think the AI technology is there. I mean, I think the the, the, the virtuality of, uh, you know, us being attached to this phone and it monitoring our every move, I mean, that's that's pretty creepy. But I think that's where we are. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody can question that. So that's not far-fetched. But, but I think the, you know, and then Teal talks about the uh, Sharia law. Now, that's, I, don't, I don't know if I spend a lot of time considering that. I do know that in Europe, Mohammed is the second most popular name amongst non-Islam countries or non-Muslim countries. Mohammed is the second most popular name in, in some of the Western European countries. We've seen a mass migration of Muslims from the Middle East into some of the Western European nations. That's a bit odd. Uh, that's a bit alarming if, um, if you believe that fanatical Islam is eventually a threat and menace to, to a, um, a modern and Western society. But, but I think when Teal says that's the reason Green's winning, these two other views or, or, or um, potential futures are so at odds with the human experience that this, this hyper-green, that this hyper-renewable, this, this, I mean, this full-on, all-hands-on-deck all commitment that we're making to green energy. But, but his point is, what are we going to offer as alternatives? What, what, is, the, what is the Republican slash Libertarian slash America First movement going to offer to an independent voter who um, may or may not believe some of what Teal said, but, but he wants to know, hey, if I elect you to be in charge of government, what are your philosophies? What are your bents? What are your, what are your beliefs? I'll give you an example of green energy. This is interesting to me. And I read this a couple of days ago in the American Conservative. Um, the history of techno uh, technological progress has included one word, and I'm talking about transportation, talking about green energy, and that word is speed. I mean, that's been a big deal for the Western world. Um, can't speak to the Eastern world because don't know. I don't understand, you know, what's going on in China, what's going on in, uh, in Russia, and uh, you know, some, of, some of these um, communist countries and totalitarian regimes. Uh, th they don't make a lot of the data public. But in the Western world, um, technological progress has in large part been associated with speed. I mean, every, every advent, every improvement, every advancement we've made in, in the field of transportation has been to do what? To get us there faster. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, safety is a big deal. But scientists and engineers and, and designers have spent millions or billions and billions and billions of dollars to build faster means of transportation. Um, I think the, the, the way, I don't, I don't want to take credit for another man's writing, but uh, when the the, the man's natural freedom of movement. I mean, I thought that was well written. Man's natural freedom of movement. Um, that there have been economic challenges and political challenges and, and obviously cultural challenges. There's nothing about renewable energy that leads you to believe it's going to be faster. So for hundreds of years, our philosophies and commitments have been made to get revved to California faster to get me to Williams-Brice Stadium faster, the interstates, the, 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 the Amtraks, the, the, the hyperspace, you know, the, um, the Concord. And, and the green energy is basically asking us to accept less speed in the name of uh, renewable, in the name of saving the planet. It's not even more efficient. I'm going to stop saying that. It's not a more efficient way to transport people from point A to point B. It might be a least efficient. You don't have any second. Right now, today, it's a far least efficient method of doing it. But there's some altruism here.
that there's something that you believe you're doing to help make the world a better place. And I think there's a way to couch that argument. So you're telling me that man has to accept in the year 2022 a, a less speedy way of getting you from point A to point B when for hundreds of years we've dedicated all of our efforts to make sure that this um that, that mankind's natural freedom of movement is, is to not be expanded? I mean, that's what you're telling us? I mean, you want us to vote for you because you're going to slow us down? You see where I'm headed? I mean, th- th- there's yeah. a way to naturally couch this argument. We just don't do a good job of that. And, and a lot of the voters don't have the, 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 the patience to allow you to walk through some of, the, um, some of the arguments that need to be made if you are going to have that argument. But I, I was just thinking about that, I don't know, last week one day. Okay, the Democrats are saying vote for us. And we'll, 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 we'll axe the gas automobile. I mean, there'll, there'll be no longer internal combustion engines. Everything's going to be solar and wind and renewables and, you know, all these other uh, hydrocarbon and all. Uh, well, a hydrocarbon would be um, so some, of, some, of the, uh, some of the nuclear power, some of the modular nuclear power. There's nothing about that more efficient. In fact, it really flies in the face of our, our desire to get somewhere faster. And uh, we've just not done a good job of saying no, I mean we want to we want to expand the boundaries of man. We want to, and that's what we want to do. I just don't know that we articulate it very well or understandable. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. It takes Mondays to make Fridays. I really hadn't thought of it much like that, but I guess it makes sense. So the technological advancements over basically modern history ha- has been pretty much about getting us places faster to me it has yeah i mean you had the you know, trains sure airplanes sure faster airplanes sure. and then as time you, is money how many times have we heard that time well, is yeah, money money is time sense. i gotta get there i guess we could fly to california in five hours or walk there in a year how many know. how many scientists engineers or designers have been celebrated by slowing things down <laughs> no, but but now uh through some of these democrat environmental policies we're supposed to accept you know getting places slower and i would argue you know, less comfortably, you know, run your air conditioners at a higher temperature and, and accept that as progress. And that needs to be the counter argument. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. If you're an independent <laughs> and you vote for the Democrats, they're basically telling you that to get from here to there is going to take you longer in the name of saving the planet. You know, they've got this totalitarian regime in charge of climate science in America, and they're not going to allow for any sort of debate. They're not going to allow for any sort of discussion. I mean, it's, it is what it is. They've made their mind up that they're right. And they have control of academia. They have control of the media. But, but the argument I'd make is, okay, vote for the Democrat, and it takes you longer to get anywhere you want to. It's less efficient. It is innovation, but it's not innovation predicated on what historically we have considered a priority. That's getting us there faster. That's the point I'm trying to make. And that's a simple argument to make, but, but nobody in the Republican Party understands how to make that argument because they're all 80 years old and i believe you know through natural they're they're forcing it on us now we know and we're feeling the effects of that but you know through natural um innovation that we might eventually get there where that you know batteries are more efficient and and the energy to 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 create and to be stored in the batteries is created more efficiently and and quote cleaner we would get there but but let those sectors compete on equal footing with those that have already been established to exactly. have worked. I mean, if, if the if Without the market, disrupting. Sure, and I'm not I'm not opposed to incentivizing. I'm, not, I'm really not. I'm not opposed to government incentivizing, but don't force this totalitarian system. Don't, don't make me drive an electric vehicle despite not wanting to. Why would I want to buy an electric vehicle 
that's going to take me 20% longer to get from uh, Florence to California. I mean, it, that's stupid. That makes no sense. But you're making me do it, not because the market dictates what, what is a better way to travel. And, and I think it's odd that, yeah, I mean, I, I think the majority of our experiences in transportation have been predicated on speed. And, and we know this is going to slow everything down. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Hey, guys. So, Ken, you, you, you're basically talking about sort of something similar to a new contract with America, right? Very similar to that. Okay. Um, I, I thought that was it, and I agree with you. Um, along with speed, though, you know, just imagine us all riding electric bicycles. You, you know, speed has allowed us to live in the country and work in the city. And I think that they would like to do away with a lot of that, get us all packed into the cities where they have more control. But just imagine, you know, you live 20 miles out in the country. You know, I'm not even talking about going to California, but an extra hour back and forth to work every day, extra two hours back and forth to work every day because you're having to ride a scooter or something. Uh, it's – and I don't know, obviously, how it's all going to shake out. None of us do, but uh, it doesn't look like fun. Oh, yeah, and one more thing. Joe Manchin serves you right. You guys have a good weekend. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. I mean, imagine in some of the European parliaments, I mean, they're basically voting to ban the sale of cars and commercial vehicles that use gasoline or diesel. I mean, this coming to California, I mean, they've already implemented some early stages of that, but um, I mean, a politician forcing me to buy an electric car should be a turnoff. And that's some of the argument I'd make. Are you going to vote for the party? that eventually forces you to buy an electric car. Not because you choose to, not because you think it's a good decision, but because they believe it's the right decision and are going to force you to make it. Th th those are some of the debates we're just not having. Back in a minute. Let's go back to the argument I'm making. The argument I'm making is we all have this desire to be free, to, uh, to, to be allowed to move within society. If I want to fly to Atlanta to watch the Braves play and I've got the money, I don't want to spend a day and a half in transit. I want to get on a plane and in 30 minutes land in Atlanta or 40 minutes or whatever it is. I mean, if I want to fly to New York for the weekend, I mean, I don't want to, you know, fly at 100 miles an hour. I mean, I want to fly at 600, 700, 800, 900 miles an hour. I want to get there faster and faster and faster. And here's some of the irony in this. The same people who have insisted almost required you to dry uh, or buy an electric car um, to save the world from this climate apocalypse that is impending and, and, and for sure to happen. I mean, they, they're now asking you not to charge your electric car to minimize the chance or risk of blackouts. Mm -hmm. is, is that the real point, or could I be a total conspiracy theorist and argue that a friend of totalitarian government is restricting free movement? I mean, if I really want to go to the extreme and, and try to, you know, play it out to wow. the end— I mean, you know, I mean, once again, now, do, do independents, I mean, think about Republicans and Democrats. Forget that a second. Think about the independent voter, the 40% who say, I'll vote for a Republican if I think they're the better candidate. I'll vote for the Democrat if I think they're the better candidate. I mean, if you're the party that convinces them that you are for liberation, you are for freedom, you are for the, um, once again, the free movement of humankind from one state to another, one country to another, um, across, you know, oceans from one continent to another, um, and the others not. Once again, these folks who are um, not desiring but forcing you to buy electric cars, I mean, in California, they say by what, 2031 or two, they're, they're going to ban the sale of, of internal combustion-powered engines. You know, you can't buy a gas-powered car in California 
post. I mean, there are European parliaments that have already done this, but the Western Europeans are always a little bit more um, dainty than we are. We're closely catching, but they're always a little bit more um, <laughs> dainty than, than, than we are. But, um, but yeah, now in California and in some of these other utopians, they're asking or advising you to not charge your electric car to minimize the risk of a potential blackout. So maybe, just maybe the part of the electric car is to inhibit or restrict free movement. Mm. Let's go to the phone. And, and hey, you have to point out, too, some of these same people, before we go to our call here, uh, are the same ones, John Kerry, for example, who's flying around on private jets because, to quote him, people like me have to travel on private jets. But, but okay, think of the hypocrisy there. I mean, it, it's a little bit like... I mean, the, the tyrannical do-gooder. You know, I like for you to live under these rules and regulations, but, but you certainly don't think they should apply to me. Yeah, his movement is not restricted. Well, I mean, he's on, a, he's on his wife's private jet. Exactly. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Yeah, how many of those government buildings do you think turned their thermostat to 78 degrees <laughs> to save energy? Uh, the, the problem is, is if, the idea is so absurd. The American people is not letting it sink in what we're what we have. But Joe, we're not right making now. the counter argument. I mean, they're making the argument that there's a climate apocalypse, and you need to do your part to save us from that. We're not countering well, that with an effective, um, disagreeable position. I know, and that's the problem. You know, the founder of Greenpeace resigned from that organization. Because he said it went from an environmental thing to a money-making thing. They were all about cleaning up the planet. He wasn't about destroying the planet. Right now, we've got approximately between 12 and 14 different sources of energy that we use every day. And people don't understand that 90% of the stuff that is made that you wear, you eat, you drive, you carry about your everyday life. Ninety percent of that is created by carbon-based fuel, which they call fossil fuel. They want to go to wind and solar. That will destroy our economy because with all these other energy sources, you can ramp up the production. You can bring online another source of energy when one is not enough wind and solar the sun only shines so bright the wind only blows so hard you cannot ramp those sources of energy up in times of emergency two things i'm looking at right now that scares the hell out of me the national reserve oil the strategic oil is is that around 400 billion our 400 million barrels. We started right at 790 million barrels. And that fuel is in case we go to war or a hurricane. Because as you know, in a hurricane, they shut down most of the oil rigs in the Gulf. And this country will come to a standstill or the prices will go up so high and people won't think about it until they're freezing to death in their homes. And that's the wrong time to think about it. But the other thing I'm looking at is that, and I think I told you before about it, the executive order that Biden gave about six weeks after he became president for all the agencies to get out the vote. 
that's why and and they won't answer any questions on that several groups have, have put in for freedom of information uh request and they refuse to answer what their plans are because the federal government cannot get involved in state level elections but they're doing it but they won't tell us what they're doing another thing they're doing they want to go to digital money and if you watched tucker last night or hannity or uh the guy before them they're talking about visa mastercard and uh discover all of them's going to tracking your firearms purchases now why is that but anyway this is all about control and and the people need to wake up because we're getting ready to lose if we lose this election i don't think we'll have another fair election because they're they're doing everything they can people don't understand how serious this is that's all i got to say thank you joe appreciate it have a good weekend i mean at its core i mean listen you've got conservatives who believe in less government you got liberals who believe in more government you've got independents who kind of sort of or trying to find some equilibrium. I mean, where is the balance of what the right amount of government is? The argument that I would make is every time we increase the power of government, we undermine the individual. And it's hard for me to believe that the majority of independents are not for individualism. They would not rather get to New York as fast as they can, get to California as fast as they can, fly their family on a Swiss vacation as fast and efficient and affordable as they can. I mean, the, the, the free movement of human beings has become something we have taken for granted. And, and if we forsake the energy policy that has gotten there, and once again, I'm not anti-innovation. I'm not anti-renewable. I am pro-free market. Let the marketplace dictate when it makes sense for my family to get on an electric or get in an electric car and try to drive to williams Bryce Stadium. I mean, I, I'm, I'm perfectly trusting of the marketplace to figure that out for me, and I'll make a decision based upon not what a government edict or order said, not what some progressive totalitarian said, but but rather, but once again, to the independent, and this is an ever-growing segment of American voters, to the independent, I think we have to explain that every time we increase the power of government, it undermines the individual spirit. But I don't think anybody could argue contrary to that. You, you can say, hey, Ken, you're not giving us enough credit on the renewable energy side. Okay, let's debate it. I mean, let, let's have a candid, honest conversation about my um, underestimating or your overestimating of that. that. That is a very legitimate debate to be had. But, but there's no doubt, there's no argument to be had as to whether or not increasing the power of government undermines the, the personal empowerment of individuals. I mean, history shows that in every nation in the history of mankind, America included. And I think that's the argument. And we just don't do it. We, the, the Republican Party, the less liberal of the two parties, does not do a good job explaining that to rank and file independent minded voters. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Um, here's what I'm going to say blah, 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 you want freedom, blah, blah. Nobody, no, they don't. Nobody wants freedom anymore. Everybody wants income security, physical security, and environmental security because they've been told the planet's going to burn, you're in trouble, we've let crime run rampant, so your life is in danger, stay in your house, don't come out, we'll take it from here. 
And that is, you know, our generation, Ken, yeah, we were sold, you want freedom. This generation has been sold, you want security. You don't want ever to worry about anything. We'll take care of your income. We'll take care of your housing. We'll take care of your health. We'll take care of your future. We'll take care of your energy. We'll take care of everything. Don't you worry your pretty little head over it. This will not sell. And the reason that, as you just said, there are more and more independents is because they are rejecting both parties. We cannot win them with a hyper-Republican argument. We can't win them with a hyper-conservative argument. And we sure as hell are not going to win them pretending that we're libertarians. The libertarian wing of the Republican Party is what is wrong with our party. And that's why we can't win over normal people. The normal people in this world, Ken, don't go on vacation. They don't because they can't afford it. Mom and dad are working. Kids are at school getting taught who knows what. Nobody's got time to do anything but slave away to make their payments. You've made that argument 10,000 times on this show. So now to turn around and say, no, what you really need is to be able to go to the south of France. It's not going to sell. Now, you might say, don't you want your Amazon stuff to get to you quicker? You might have an argument there. But I don't think this is the argument. The argument is the best solution, the safest way for you to live your life is to live your life free. Not because it's bigger and faster and stronger and cooler, but because it's the only way you're actually going to be safe. But, Larry, the, the only, only people way. articulating that argument is the libertarian wing of the Republican Party. The Republican Party does not articulate that argument. That's why the libertarian uh, wing has become so prominent within the Republican Party. The libertarian wing gave you Facebook, Amazon, Google, and whatever other giant company, Microsoft. That's what the libertarian wing gave you. That's what you got for their talk. You got hyper-capitalism. That's where it came from. It didn't come from the left. They may side with the left now, but that's not where they were born. They were born in the libertarian wing of the Republican Party. Laissez-faire, let the market decide. It's the most efficient, and we built these bohemians, and now they're going to eat us. So what has the Republican Party stood for? While the libertarians were standing for the hyper capitalism, what did the Republican Party stand for? Doing nothing. Uh, th and that's the point. I, I'm not defending raw and rampant libertarianism. You and I have talked privately and publicly about this. I'm just saying it's almost as if a lot of people felt they had no choice. This was the only show in town that appeared to be doing anything. Well, and then, but the, the only show in town that appeared to be doing anything were, were the liberals, and they're saving the planet. Now, you know, and they said that's the, the highest calling. And so how are you going to compete with that? You can't say the highest calling is not to save the planet. It's to take a better vacation. It's not going to work. we got to tell them we got to save humanity. Thank you, Larry. Well explained. But there's an interesting point of view. We, we don't always agree, don't always disagree. Sometimes we agree and disagree almost simultaneously. Um, I, I was thinking about this this morning. So um, Tish James. Uh, I'm going to call her Tish James because she's not a serious person. If she were a serious person, I'd call her Leticia James. But um, a bit derogatorily, I'll say Tish James, the AG of um, of uh, New York, actually did exactly what she said she was going to do. So, so to Larry's point, what, what if we did this? What if all of these climate scientists who are declaring uh, an impending ecological crisis is um, uh, it's necessitated these actions? We have no choice. Uh, there is no excuse for progressives not to seize control of the government. 
that these um these right wingers these libertarians are not to be trusted with your health and safety and well-being they don't take climate science seriously um i read the trump indictment yesterday i, I read the charges and it's about 200 charges of um, basically saying he falsified or provided misleading valuations of the lawsuit. Yeah, the lawsuit. I mean, it's not an indictment. It's a civil suit. And it's not, it's, you know, it's a, a preponderance of evidence, not beyond a shadow, a reasonable doubt. It's a preponderance of evidence. But in um in one of these, uh, Trump builds a golf course in Scotland. I'll give you a real quick example. Trump builds a golf course in Scotland um, for $327 million. He says that he can put 2,500 homes on the golf course in Scotland, but he's only had permits for 1,500 homes. Now, I'm sure he argued to the bank that there's a phase two or a phase three, or I may be able to buy the adjacent property and develop that property and increase the value. I mean, he and the bank probably had it out. And I don't know what they mutually agreed upon, but Tish James is saying um, that is a false and misleading violation of asset uh, or asset um, declaration of value. So, so here's the point I'll make to Larry's point. What if some of these climate scientists were challenged by the AGs in red states? I mean, are you making honest uh, assumptions or are you cooking the books? Let's see the science. Let's see the data. You're asking us to recreate an economy let, let, to save humanity. Let's see the data. I mean, Trump had to provide all this information to all these banks. The banks agreed to lend him money. These are victimless crimes if they are crimes. That these are, I mean, the banks got paid, the accountants got paid, the lawyers got paid. Nobody's accusing anybody of defrauding anybody. Now, Trump's been accused of that. He's accused others of that. I mean, that's kind of his world. I mean, he's a high-flying real estate developer. He probably stays in 20 or 30 lawsuits. I mean, I bet his entire life has been uh, about suing somebody or somebody suing him. He's not really intimidated nor bothered about that. It's standard practice in that world of high-flying real estate and commercial development. But, but if Donald Trump is being accused of... Um, you know, uh, fake and, excuse me, false and misleading valuations of assets, how are we declaring this ecological crisis based on analysis or assumptions that nobody's ever taken an honest, hard look at? So, yeah, I mean, it's a bit symbolic, and I don't know where it goes from here, but why wouldn't a, an AG in a red state accuse a climate scientist at Johns Hopkins University of cooking the books and make some sort of formal civil charge against him? I mean, you're asking, you're forcing people to not be allowed to buy. I mean, in California in 10 years, you can't buy a gas-powered vehicle based on what some scientist at Northwestern or, or UPN may have said. I mean, the absurdity of that. But, but once again, haven't we kind of sort of agreed that we're not going to turn the other cheek anymore? I mean, haven't we kind of sort of agreed as a Republican Party it's time to fight fire with fire? An eye for an eye? I, I mean, so. I've heard this over and over and over again. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander when they come after Trump. We find something we're in stark disagreement of, and we go after them. You know, there's not a formal document here. There's not a loan agreement, but public money is in play. I mean, these scientists are publicly funded. I mean, they're grant after grant after grant after grant dispersed to universities. Those universities give it to these climate scientists, uh, and they know what they have to do. They have to come up with a an outcome that suits the totalitarian regime and supports the, the dire ecological crisis, we're told, that that is impending. So, so why not ask for the data, challenge the data, bring those people before some sort of committee or maybe a grand jury? And I mean, isn't that kind of what we're saying? I mean, if we believe that the other side's playing for keeps, isn't it time for our side to play for keeps like as well? Take a break. 
Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937. Got a couple of um, a couple. Well, I mean, a couple of political figures. Let's let's use it that. Uh, I don't want to be um, I don't. I mean, Russell's an elected official. Joey's a an aspiring elected official, but they're both political figures. One's in the studio. One's on the phone. Let's go to the phone first. Russell Fry, who is the Republican nominee, the Trump endorsed Republican nominee in the seventh congressional district, is uh, with us. Russell, good morning. How are you? Good morning. It's good. To, it's good to be in the Carolinas this morning. The so, weather's great. Trump's coming close to town, so here we go. All right. Let me let me get this straight now. So you win the primary, but that doesn't make you a member of Congress. There's still a general election. You're the odds-on favorite. We've accepted that. We've embraced that. But I don't want people to fall asleep. We've got forty-six-ish days left until the election. Russell, what can people help you with to make sure we get you across the finish line? Oh, listen, great question. You know, it's it, look, our country, think about this, it's not just about me. It's about races up and down the ballot. It's about the country. We have to get engaged. You can't show up to a football game on Friday night and expect to win if you haven't shown up to practice all week. So we have to get in the fight right now and whatever people can do. I mean, get engaged, use your voice, uh, get out there, put a sign in your yard, um, you know, make phone calls for the party or for the candidates. Uh, use your social media, encourage 10 friends to come to the polls and vote. We can't fall asleep right now. Okay, let's talk about an event, specific event. Donald Trump, former president, will be in Wilmington, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, tell us, elaborate on that, if you will. You know, so President Trump, obviously, he, he does rallies for people. North Carolina is a very pivotal state. Um, we've got a very contested Senate race up there just north of us and uh, a couple uh, congressional seats as well. So he's doing a rally in Wilmington today. It's free. Come on out. I, I guarantee you one thing, Ken, it'll be better weather than it was back in March when he did it for me <laughs> in Florence. But, uh, it, it, you know, it, what, what really is awesome about these rallies is, uh, one, the speech by the president is always good. It's entertaining. Um, and, he's you know, he's a, he's a showman. He knows the stuff. But really, when you get to see average everyday americans who are just um excited they're uh, they're tired of the direction of our country but there really is kind of a, a sense of you know patriotism and optimism um at these rallies and so come on out it's always a good time and you know wilmington's not too far from us so we're going to make the journey north russell what can we do to help you between now and the end of your election i mean specifically forget the party let's be self-serving for a second we want Russell Fry to be our congressman. What can we as listeners and radio show hosts do to make sure you're successful? You know, look, I, I think, you know, what, what always, you know, continue to spread the word, I think, is the big thing. Encouraging people to vote, you know, donating to campaigns, whether it's me or somebody else. Those, these are all things that help. Um, but just being that voice and being because, again, you know, you should see my email or my Twitter feed. I mean, people come out and they. They blast conservatives and, you know, it wears on you a little bit. So just reassure them, stand behind them, you know, whether I was your first choice or your last, you know, it's time to, you know, it's time to coalesce around the Republican ticket. Let's, let's go get this job done. This country needs to be saved. It needs help. And the only way we're going to get there is if we unite behind our Republican banner. Let's go get these guys and gals up and down the ticket elected. And let's go about the business of fixing this country. I mean, we've got bigger issues to take care of than personality disputes. 
We've got inflation, which is at a 41-year high. We've got gas prices that are still through the roof. I mean, the American dream for the average working family is slipping away. And we can't, you know, I said this a couple weeks ago down in Dorchester, you know, is this going to be the first generation that hands this country off worse than they found it? Very well, I think we should let that happen. Well, very we well explained. Uh, Russell, so, so give us a website, an email, a phone number. I mean, if somebody needs a sign, wants to volunteer, knock on doors, Absolutely. How, how can they communicate with your campaign? Every, everything is the same. So my Twitter handle, Facebook handle, Instagram, Russell Fry SC, um, RussellFrySC.com. Uh, please get engaged in the fight. Whatever you can do, we'll get you a sign. We'll get you a bumper sticker. If you want to come hang out with us in Wilmington today, Come on, it's free to the public. So we're going to have a great time, and, and let's let's get engaged. We've been bouncing around the district a good bit. And if you want me to come speak to your Rotary Club or your church or your conservative organization, we're going to try to do that. We've been doing that. Um, so happy to, you know, just because the primary is over, I haven't stopped. You know, I've, I've been barnstorming the district just as aggressively as I did in the primary. That was a big reason why we won, because we went to the things like festivals and parades and you know, you get to meet people one-on-one and talk to them about it. So we're doing the same thing because it's that important. Good deal. Thank you, Russell. Good luck, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Russell Frost, um, Republican nominee for the 7th Congressional um, Senate District. That You know, that's that's not been a lot said about that race, but don't take anything for granted. I mean, you know, it's not a swing district, but it's not a, um, it's not a slam dunk. It ain't Wyoming. As I like to say, um, it's still South Carolina, and it consists of a lot of rural South Carolina, and there are a lot of um, old school Democrats in some of these rural areas in South Carolina. Um, so, so yeah, be, be careful and make sure you go support Russell Fry. Um, local government. We talk a lot about local government on this show, probably not as much as we should. Um, but the city council's race in um, in November is an essential race. It's a big race. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Joy McMillan's with us. Joy is a Republican candidate for the what district, Joey? District 1. District 1, the seat currently held by William Schofield, who would transition over to the county council. So this is a hold. I mean, this is not a, um, a Republican picking up a seat. This is a Republican holding on to a seat that is currently held by a Republican. And Joey knows this. This is a very swingy district. Yes. I mean, Joey's got to work hard, and he's got to have your support to make sure we hold on to this seat and you can say that uh, local politics is not partisan, and, and it shouldn't be. But when there's a D beside your name, there's a certain mindset. When there's an R beside your name, there's a certain mindset. And people have to make a distinguishment. between Philosophically, what do they believe government should do? Make life more complicated? Make life less complicated? And as a former elected member of a local delegation, you can certainly make it more complicated if you choose to. Joey, what what motivated you to want to run, and what are your priorities as a candidate? So, Ken, what motivated me is I got real involved when the city put a rental registry in. Um, I thought that was it was overbearing, and it and the way they did it, we were very involved, and we we talked to city council about it, and talked about some things that could change, and they put it through. They didn't, didn't take any of our recommendations, and, I, and it's really a it's put a burden on property owners, and it's and it's put a it's put a burden on on um tenants too it's just it, it wasn't good it wasn't good a good ordinance and then they had a business license fee came in and, and um, i thought it was really unfair to tax businesses during a during a pandemic and it just really got me involved in in, in city government and uh, that's what that's what made me want to run and um 
you know, I, I thought I might want to be in politics, but I did, didn't know. But I just feel like I feel like there's some go- things going on in Florence. And I feel like we're right on the precipice where we can be a great city. But without, I'm put it to we need good government to be a great city. We don't need great government. It is, I don't think there's really such thing as great government. But, um, I, you know, um, I was listening to Greg Robinson, the, the uh, Florence Progress person talking. He said, you know, they have these uh, secret shoppers. These industries are coming in. They have secret shoppers coming in, and they stop at a gas station. They'll talk to somebody, and they'll say, Hey, what do you think about Florence? And I could see somebody say, you know, uh, the crime's kind of bad in Florence. We got a bad rap on that. We got some litter over here. And, uh, you know, it's not a very business friendly town. And I, that's not going to turn businesses on. They're going to go somewhere else. You know, I think we, I think Florence can do better. And I think city council can do better. And I think we can do better things. And in a year from now, I could see the secret shopper get up there and somebody saying, yeah, you know what? We had a crime problem, but our community, we came together and we solved the crime issues and we, and we're doing better as a city. We don't have the litter we used to have. And, boy, I tell you what, you talk to a business owner and they say, you know what, the city of Florence has done everything possible to make my small business successful. And I just, I know we can get there, but it's going to take leadership to do it. And I, and I, and I feel like I, I really feel like I need to serve. I feel like it's something I need to do. Joy, one of the basics, and you touched on it a couple of times, to me one of the basic tenets of government is to keep people safe. I mean, we can argue whether it should build this bridge or that road or or fund this university or that K through 12 education. Th- those are philosophical, genuine debates that need to be right. had. But I think we all agree that government has an, an ultimate responsibility to make sure its citizenry are kept safe. We have a problem here. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you accept that we have a problem? And do you believe we need to be more proactive and, and collaborative in addressing the problem of crime? I, I'll tell you what hurts me, Ken, is I feel safe in Florence. I really do. And, and, you know, I'm in a business where we try to get people to come to Florence and sell them houses. What hurts me is some people don't. And I, and I, I, I can't live with that. So we've got to, what do we need to do about crime? We need to get it. And, you know, I've dealt with the city of Florence police department, number to professional, do what they're supposed to do. They can't solve it on their own. It's going to take the community getting together and saying, what can we do about crime? We need to mutually get together and figure this thing out it's with the sheriff's department, the police department, but the community has a stake in it. And the community, the community is going to come together and solve this problem. That's what's going to happen. How important is it to collaborate with the county? I mean, they're they're they're, they're separate governments. I mean, you got a county council, you got a city council, you got a county administrator, you got a mayor, but but we're all trying to get to the same place. Sometimes our interests align, and sometimes they don't so much align. And uh, you know, I remember going back with a kid. I remember this this you know what between the county and city, we've got to work together because we all are for the same goal. Let's face it: if a big industry is coming to Florence, they're not coming in the city. There's nowhere for them to go. They're going to go to the county, and whatever the county can do to bring in businesses, to, to bring in industry, that's we got to work together on that. And we've got to make it. We've got to make it so with the industry. Go, well, we're going to be out in the county, but most of our people are going to live in the city of Florence, and we're going to do business there. How, what can we do to make that better? Joy, we live at the mercy of this duopoly. I mean, as frustrated as I am about it, it's a Republican or a Democrat. It's a, it's a, it's a binary choice. I mean, you can vote for one or the other. To the non-Republican voter, why should they consider Republican Joey McMillan? Well, I, I want to. I want the city council to work together and make Florence better. You know, and if the if a Democrat's got a good idea, which happens, um, I'm 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 going to work with them to do that. But we need to work together. And I'm I'm Republican. I'm very conservative, and I'm very pro business. Um, and that's going to be my my thrust of where I go. But but I can tell you, if you're a if you're an independent. I'm going to do what it takes to make Florence better, and that's the only thing I'm concerned about. How can someone find out more about your campaign, your philosophy, your your issues, 
Um, is there a website? And email? I mean, uh, just call me on my phone. It's my number is eight four three six zero one seven seven one zero. I'll be happy to talk to anybody about my campaign and what they can do to help. Sign in the yard. Uh, I'm 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 available all the time. Let me ask you a question. I'm gonna get you off subject here for a second, but it does play into politics. I mean, um, I, I read a quote a second ago. I mean, it's, it's kind of a um, it's a doctored up quote. I'm good for taking somebody else's words and customizing them uh, in Pamplicoinian. But um, <laughs> and I understand that. Well, I mean, that's 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 to your detriment that you do understand uh, what I'm saying when I say these crazy things. It's no wonder Americans can't afford a house. All are trying to live in the same in the same places. How do we make Florence a place? that people genuinely want to move to and call home? So the first thing we got to do is we got to have opportunities for our kids. When they go off to jobs. school. Jobs, right. You know, I hate, you know, I've got I've got one son. He's probably going to move back here because he loves to hunt and fish in the PD River. You know, so he's probably going to be back in Florence and he'll figure out something. I got one son's going to law school. I don't, he probably won't come back to Florence. But wouldn't it be great? So the way you get somebody to want to live here, you give them opportunities. You give them, you give people jobs and opportunities, they'll come here. And then we need, when we do that, we need to have affordable housing. And, and the government does a lot to make housing not so affordable, and we definitely need to work. Is that, that something we could streamline at the county level? I mean, obviously there are federal regulation, international business building codes, and all this. And but, but is, are there things we can do at the local level? that allow for more affordable housing and, and a more affordable quality of life. There, there are certainly things we can do to make it easier for builders and developers to build houses and make them more affordable. We can get rid of some red tape. We can we can do a lot of things. And we need to, the city needs to be in a pro-growth, pro-business stance. Because that, I mean, you know, I think about, you know, you're, a small business is somebody's, that's, their, that's like their child or their spouse. You know, it's what they do. And it's so important, and the city needs to do everything it can to make it easier for small businesses to, to survive and thrive. Okay, last question. Who votes for you? What What, what is the District 1? So District 1, to kind of explain it, I've got a, I got a map, and I've turned my office into a war room, and the only thing that consists of is a map. So, uh, But a map, so if you take Cherokee Road and go north, that's our district. So over to Palmetto Street, and it goes as far as Irby Street, and then back everything west of that. So we're going Palmetto Street, Darlington Street, Sumter Street, and then back over, you know, Windsor Forest is in our in our uh, neighborhood, Reserve of Ebenezer, Jackson Madison, and then um, all the way the, the apartments downtown are in our in my district too. And I want to say this. I mean, Joe's not asked me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. We can't endorse here for fear of, of some sort of consequence from the FCC. And uh, what, what is it called, Rev? Uh, the, the fairness. I mean, it's not the fairness well, doctrine. Yeah, that, yeah, that's gone. Yeah, if, if, you, just... if, you, if, you, if, you, if you say something kind about somebody, you got to allow them to somebody somebody else to come on again. But, but I'll Equal say this. And, well, I mean, I, and, and I mean this sincerely. Uh, I think Florence is at a crossroads. I mean, I think there's one turn we could take that ain't real good. I think there's another turn we could take that, that you know, kind of saves the day and puts us back on the track to growing in proportion to the rest of South Carolina. And I think political leadership, I think a common sense approach to government, I think somebody, whether they're conservative or not, somebody who understands the the, 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 the pro-business concept, I think that is so, so vitally important in local government because you're where the rubber hits the road. And you can use no as an excuse or yes as a reason to invite entrepreneurship and innovation and, and creativity in the economy. And I think Joey gets that. I, I don't know the person he's running against. I'm not going to say negative things about the person he's running against, but I've known Joey a good while. I've always known him to be incredibly business friendly, 
and, and, and trying to figure out a way to provide opportunity, whether it's in the housing market, retail, commercial, industrial, and that's how we build a better community by providing better opportunities. We need somebody who, is, who has been in the business world, understands the business world. So I'm pleading with our listeners, yeah, we're going to vote for a senator and, a, you know, and the members of Congress and everybody's worried about the balance of power in Washington. Guys, this is an incredibly important election. So if you listen to my voice and you are in District 1, go vote for Joey McMillan. Uh, and I, I just think it's that important. And, um, and I do think it will, to some degree, dictate uh, whether we win the next 10 or 15 years or not. So um, that's about as, uh, as well as I can say it. And, um, but, but I mean it. it. It's a serious moment in this community's history, and we need to get it right. And I think voting for Joy McMillan is the right thing to do. Well, thank Ken, a, thank, I'm sorry. Thank you so much for that. Thank you very much. It'll be 20 bucks. Uh, 843-661-0937 is there. Well, that may hurt you more than it helps you. We shall, we shall see. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Bob in Florence. Hey, Bob, thanks for hanging on. Hey, you're welcome, guys. No problem. Uh, good morning. Um, at the top of the last hour news report, uh, once again, I hear of a botched execution. And I'm thinking, you know, this seems to happen every single time they try to execute one of these prisoners. And I'm and I'm thinking, well, why don't they just call a veterinarian? I mean, I've seen a veterinarian put a 1,000-pound horse down in 20 seconds. I, so I don't know why it's so hard <clears throat> to do a lethal injection on these prisoners. Uh, I guess the problem would be to try to find a, a veterinarian that would do it. But uh, uh, the technology is there. I just don't see why they have such a problem. It's almost like... Uh, they really don't want to execute the prisoner, and they're they're grasping for reasons not to, hoping the laws will change, and they will not have to do it. So, well, I'll take it off there. But, but thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. How humane or how inhumane is it to try and attempt to execute someone and not? Wow, you know, I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I understand the 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 I understand the consequence of the moment. I mean, I am well aware of that. I've told this conversation before. Um, I was looking for support as a candidate for lieutenant governor, went down to see Congressman John Napier, sat on John's back porch, drank a Miller Lite. I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> John Napier is a very serious man, former judge, lawyer, um, graduated from Davidson, I think, ended up in Congress, um, just a very respected political mind. And John began quizzing me. I didn't go there to quiz. I, I got there to get his endorsement. You know what I mean? I want to put your name on my list. Is all I wanted. I mean, I'm a good old boy. I didn't go for the the depth of conversation. I mean, I was looking for a KC and the Sunshine Band song, not a Dylan song on that given moment. All of a sudden, I'm getting a Dylan song. So so John asked me, what do you think of capital punishment? And I said, John, I'm running for lieutenant governor, man. I mean, if Andre can do it, I know I can. Why, why are you asking me these serious questions? He said, what if something happened to Governor Haley? And the next thing you know, you're deciding whether to commute or stay a death sentence. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I didn't know. I, I, want to wear, I want to wear that purple robe and have that fancy parking spot. I don't want to decide whether to kill someone or not. <laughs> wow. But, but it, it's, a, it's a serious moment. I mean, it's a very, very serious moment in our state's history when we decide to execute a prisoner. And surely we can get that right. I mean, if we made the decision that this is the right choice. How do we goof that up after that? I mean, that's good. I mean, you talk about what does government do well? 
I mean, it can't even execute somebody that it determines deserves execution. Once again, I'm not debating the merits of capital punishment. I mean, that debate happens perpetually, and it always is, you know, rearing its head in discussions about liberal America, conservative America, red America, blue America. But, but once we've landed there and made that decision, don't we owe it to the family of the person being executed and those who were, um, had the crime committed against? Don't we owe it to them to get it right? It's bizarre to me how we would goof that up, but then we're talking about talking about government. So, um, you know, I don't know what needs to be done. Um, I, I do believe that it, it takes a degree of seriousness that I don't normally provide, but, I, but I'd like to think in that moment, everybody would see it as a very, very serious moment. And, and you know, let, let's get it right. 843-661-0937. The 8 o'clock hour, it's all just uh, politics. The 9 o'clock hour, we got Chris Clark, from Gamecock Central at 8.05, excuse me, at 9.05. We got Jason Priester of Clemson Sports Illustrated at about 9.30-ish, somewhere thereabout. We'll have one of those back-to-back with the other. I want to go into, I want to kind of jump the gun a bit, Rev, at the 8 o'clock hour. Mm-hmm. I want to go into a non-political issue. You're the music expert, and I'm going to get your take on a theory that I have. Uh-oh. Back in a moment. 843-661-0937. The next hour is the decompression hour, but I owe these gentlemen. Mike Rickenbaugh's not with us, but Philip Lowe and, and Jay Jordan are, and I run these guys through the ringer. I mean, we allow the phone calls to be unedited, um, you know, just and these guys are willing to sit here and try their best to answer questions. So I owe them kind of a segment of just fun and games. Right, Rev? Sure. I've mean, got Chris yeah. Clark at Gamecock Central at 905. got Jason Priester of Clemson of Tiger Sports Illustrated at about 930. But, but Jay and Philip are here, and I just feel guilty of the way I've treated my esteemed political friends for the last six or eight weeks. It's not so much I don't trust you as I'm not sure what you're about to do. No, I mean, we're going to have a little fun here. This is a um, trap. No, it's not a trap at all. It's not a trap at have all. Have your guard up. you got a gun in your truck, so I'm not going to trap you. Truck? <laughs> right. He's got one in his pocket. No doubt about that. Okay, so I really mean this now. I absolutely mean it. So I have, um, I have been on a journey. Rev knows about the journey. Oh, you guys, don't. I have to hear. So about I it have every. Uh, I, I filed legal separation papers with Springsteen. Now I ain't into gay marriage, but you know you, you got to do what you got to do in today's modern woke world, whether you're conservative, <laughs> Republican, or not. So in um, in that divorce process, and you're committed, by the way. You admit you have not listened to Springsteen on your personal time or anything. Not since, a word since then. Since the gouging, the moment of gouging, and you you were there. Was there? Yeah. I mean, this is not something I heard. This is something the Rev and I experienced. Yep. Trying to buy Springsteen tickets to Madison Square Garden, uh, you had to work at Goldman Sachs, or you don't get to sit at the lower yeah. level. Um, the dynamic sit. pricing went into effect, and the tickets went through the roof. Yeah, I mean they they went they went from two hundred fifty dollars to four thousand, five thousand, six thousand. Ken was out. He's like, I'm and done. It, what I mean, we we went online at ten o'clock at ten thirteen. The concert was sold out, and, and the segments that we identified as you know places we'd like to sit. And Rev helped me a lot. We pre-filed. I mean, we we um we did everything. We, we had a fan. yeah. We became a verified fan. We got the app. We preloaded our payment method, and so so I'm sitting there, you know, like okay, I've done everything I know. I normally don't, but but I did everything the right way on this particular endeavor, and still was going to get gouged by dynamic pricing uh, for the poet of the working man. Stop with that. See, I don't even hear that. No, I, it makes me want to vomit <laughs> when I hear now. some of the, So so as that. a result of that, I began this journey. I wanted to find the the person who wouldn't sell out. And I landed on two guys, Guy Clark 
and Towns Van Zandt. Oh. Uh, and I've had to listen to this stuff all week during the breaks and in the studio. Well, here. is it better or worse than Springsteen? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Springsteen had hits, okay? so And these guys have never had hits because right. they're not sellouts. So, so because I got burned by sellout, I want to make sure I don't get burned again. So during this travel uh, of, of, of finding somebody that I don't believe would ever sell out, these guys can't sell out because they're dead, and they died as non-sellouts. So um, Jay Jordan's a music fan. Philip Lowe's a music fan. We're all music fans to some degree. Um, here's where I've landed, and I read an article yesterday. might have been in Rolling Stone about the greatest American band ever. Stick with me for a second now. The greatest American rock band ever. We're obviously talking about the Eagles. Uh, okay, you're close. You're real close. Okay, here's the argument. The Stones and Beatles are the greatest bands ever. I mean, you could argue which one's one, which one's two, but they're they're probably without argument the two greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Um, the Stones because they played for 300 years. The Beatles because they were the part of the greatest collection of talent. They were a shooting star. I mean, the Beatles, as a group, weren't here for long. But anyway. Short, and, uh, short time, but major influence. Yeah, and Elvis was not a, a band. I mean, Elvis right. was a music act. I mean, he was an individual uh, singer. So here's where uh, the Rolling Stone, uh, some of their music connoisseurs kind of landed, Philip. And this would be kind of, kind of generational for you and I. They're arguing that Credence Clearwater Revival is the greatest rock and, American rock and roll band ever because, here we go, Rev, you ready? Okay. The, the bands that have been inspired or the artists that have been inspired by CCR include the Eagles, include John Mellencamp, include um, Tom Petty, include Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. So the others that you would argue are their peers, I mean, you could argue, is, is, the, is CCR a better rock and roll band than the Eagles? Well, I mean, the Eagles say they wouldn't even be us an Eagles if there weren't for a CCR. So, Jay, I'll start with you. You like debating. Philip likes debating. Just arguing. I mean, it, no, there's no right answer here, wrong answer. Somebody pop a top, we'll drink a cold beer and argue. Yeah. It would be it's the proper way. It's right? Well, it's very subjective. Yeah. But, but you know, um, Tom Petty, Bob Seger, Bruce Springsteen, the Eagles, John Mellencamp, all admit that one of their biggest musical influences were CCR. Now, I would argue the Eagles. I mean, that was the first name that came to your mind. I'm a, I was a big Springsteen guy. I still think they have their place in the pantheon of great American rock and roll bands. But this person says, no, no, th those are great rock bands, but CCR is the greatest American rock and roll band ever. Argue that they are or are not. Counselor? So, so I'll, I'll do the political thing and take both sides okay. of the argument. Okay. On the one hand, I think CCR is a great band. I love a lot of their hits. I do think you have a little bit of trouble there when um, one of their most famous songs is misinterpreted as uh, there's a bathroom on the right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so instead of the Fair. bad moon on the Fair. rise. Yeah. Um, but I do think you're on the right track in that a lot of these, these great talents built their talent off of other folks. I they remember, were inspired by Correct. I went to a, um Eagles concert, was fortunate enough to go to an Eagles concert before Glenn Fry passed. This has been probably 10 years ago, Terry, and I went. And uh, Glenn Fry is, you know, sort of emceeing the concert, as I'm assuming he did at most of their concerts. And he actually taught for a few minutes. It, he didn't reference CCR, but he actually referenced the Beach Boys hmm. and how the Beach Boys had a special place in American rock and roll See, music. See, he's already jumping and, the gun. He's and, already he's stolen my thunder. <laughs> and the Eagles owed so much to the Beach Boys who came before them, and they sort of 
work through that. Process. Hot Rev, do this on for your me. List. You're, you're the trusted source of radio. I'm not. Yeah. Nobody. People say he makes it up as he goes. <laughs> what, what if I got written above CCR? Beach Boys, yeah, right there. <laughs> yeah, you did. You'd already and, written. And, it. and, and, and the, the smart Alec J. Jordan brings up the Beach Boys before I get it. See, I wanted everybody to say, yeah, I mean, I get it. And I was going to say, what about the Beach Boys? Yeah. I mean, are I'm, we leaving out I'm the Beach way Boys? way better at the non-political stuff than the political <laughs> stuff. I think we can all agree on that. Philip, I mean, what, what, what do you make of this debate? You know, I think everybody goes back to the 10th, 11th, and 12th grade of their lives. And that whatever was popular then is what you like. And, and, and you can just follow that out. Now, Eagles, you know, Aerosmith, Bad Company, those were like, you know, big, big deals to me. And then I watched my brother and it was Grand Funk Railroad and CCR and, and you know, three or he's four a little older than you are. Stones. Your brother's a little older than a little you are. Older. Yeah, not I much mean, older, but a little bit. Yeah. Two and a half years. Yeah, that, that would stand to reason. So you're saying the 10th, 11th, 12th grade, go back and see who was most popular during that period of time. And that's probably who was most impactful. And that's what we want to hear. And, and even college time, too. Yeah. Those were the good times, man. Mom and dad were still paying for things. Yeah, and you're, you're young. You can drink all the beer in the world that night and again the next night. Well, that was uh, when you could be 18 back yeah. then, too. You're right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I will say this. I came along, along, obviously, being younger than you guys, a generational or two behind. Baby but, face. <laughs> but looking back at it, it's hard to argue that that was just an era of amazing you talk about the 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 good crop so to speak i mean how can you argue against that being if not the most one of the most prolific time period in music come not that you know not that we're the stuff we have today isn't good but it's nowhere near as good as what we had in the past we, we had eight or nine bumper crops consecutively see i'm i'm still mad with jay <laughs> there's no way anybody was going to bring up beach boys I mean, there, and at the end, I was going to do as I always do, try to be the ultimate contrarian and say, oh, yeah. what about the Beach Boys? Sure. You can take so, your sir, little deuce coupe and park it around. No, okay, there you go. Okay, okay. <laughs> See, I, fourth, I, I somebody call in and ask him about magistrates and judges and, oh, and electing oh, judges. Okay, okay. okay. See, I was going to take it easy, but See, I'm this not. Is, this is supposed to I, be yeah, lighthearted. I'm not, I'm not taking it easy now. anymore. I'm not, I've am not. declared him the this opposition This is what happens right when you steal the host's yeah, thunder. That's right, and he did steal don't, my thunder. Don't I know it. So what do you make of that, Rep? You're the music connoisseur. So I, I'm not a CCR fan, never have been. Um, and, and the influence, I mean, communist. every communist. artist today had to have been influenced by a previous artist. So that's just kind of a linear timeline. You, you, you hear and you're influenced by music as a creator or just as a listener, right? So how many, how many bands were influenced by Lisa Lisa and the cult jam? <laughs> None. Okay. None. But I mean, you're aware or maybe how not to do it. Right. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to sound like that. So I would, I would not, I don't even think CCR belongs in the conversation Whoa. with the Eagles. That's just me. I'm just not a fan. Whoa. Okay. They had a few hits and I appreciate that, but they were just, they were just there before the Eagles. Eagles by far. Could it be that you don't remember CCR? I remember them. I mean, you remember them not in their best day. I mean, and I played their songs remember, on I mean, classic that, rock radio for okay. years. Can you be the best ever and not have played Woodstock? As an American band, I'm not talking about, I mean, Dylan played Woodstock. Hendrix played Woodstock. Janis Joplin was at Woodstock. Sure. The band was at Woodstock. CCR was at Woodstock. Did the Eagles play at Woodstock? I'm well, sorry, it's, it escapes well, me for a second. Well, if they would have been a band, they certainly could have played at Woodstock they, before they, their time. They could have. I mean, as long as I'm in deep, I want to go deeper. That's okay. a terrible question to ask. Okay. I mean, you're basing your your idea of what the best band is on based on one event on a weekend. No, I'm in just New arguing. I just arguing because I like arguing. Play Woodstock. I can't no, remember. no. Okay. Maybe Springsteen was out of town that weekend. Yeah. Maybe he had the flu. <laughs> Maybe he had a wedding he had to get to that weekend. <laughs>
Woodstock was in 68, 69. Yeah, uh, Springsteen shows up a few years later than that. What do you, Friel wants to jump in here and say something. And it ain't Pearl Jam. Stop with the Pearl Jam nonsense. <laughs> no, but I am fuming. Nobody mentioned Skinner. How are you not Ooh, mentioning Skinner? Yeah, that's a good point. But but are is Skinner a great Southern rock band or a great American band? They're a great everything. Okay, I mean I'm not disagreeing. I'm just it's subjective, as Rev says. Yeah. Put that knife down for y'all. You come over here and try to <laughs> well, stop somebody. How do you somebody. compare them to the Almond Brothers or the Marshall Tucker Band? Yeah, right. Um, I mean, Phil, Philip nailed it. I mean, it's the tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. I mean, to me. I think it's hard to believe the flock of seagulls sitting in the yeah. Hall. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going with men without hats. <laughs> or men at work. Or, you know, men at work. One of, the, one of yeah. those bands. The 80s. But, but, but I, I do me. think, I mean, it's, it's, it's a testament to the importance of music. You know, I actually got kind of my game face on reading the article. I'm like, okay, I'm going to prove this right or wrong. I mean, yeah. it's not CCR. It's yeah. the Beach Boys. So I set out where Jordan was headed out. I was going to prove that the Beach Boys were the most influential American rock. But see, the argument would be, were the Beach Boys rock and roll? They're kind of folksy. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, yeah. they had kind of had their yeah. own California Beach Boys. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What, what genre would the Beach Boys but be? You think I about mean, Philip, the... when I say Beach Boys, you think rock and roll? No. I mean, I don't. But that maybe that's what makes them such a linchpin in this discussion. They took it from folksy to, they showed how you could go from folksy to rock and roll. There's a lot of folksy in the Eagles. Yeah, so did yeah, they. Sure. Sort of yeah, you're right. No question about it. And you Re- can't argue with the success they had by uh, taking that. Okay, run. Rev, what is the band that you remember that was hard to put into a genre? I mean, that was we talked recently about Old Crow Medicine Show. Old Crow Medicine Show. Are they country? Kind of. Are they folk? Kind of. Are they bluegrass? Kind of. Are they pop? Kind of. And and you argue, I think you argue, that the reason they probably not enjoyed the commercial, they're, they're talented beyond belief, but they probably not enjoy the commercial success because it's hard to put them in a, in a box and a format and a genre and play them on the radio. Well, folksy music, I mean, is that is really, that's not mainstream. It's a nope, niche. Nope, you're right. right. It's, it's the mainstream artists that have the tremendous success. Right? So what is, I mean, it, it's the Eagles are that's a rock band, Country's right? mainstream, you know, rock is mainstream, pop is mainstream. So what is the band that, that overperformed despite not being in a particular genre? Were the Eagles rock and roll before Joe Walsh gets there? See, some, they started really... They, they really could be classified as country. I mean, they're country or, or country-ish rock. California right? country. Yeah. yeah. Until Walsh. They kind of, they, but see, the, the difference is they probably kind of invented a genre in a way. They just did their thing. The And, and Philip would agree to this, and I think you would, Rev. I don't know about um, Jordan, but the Eagles, I mean, if somebody wrote the soundtrack to my youth, it would be the Eagles. Yeah. I mean, I, I know every word to nearly sure. every song. My kids know the word to nearly every song, the Eagles. I mean, I'm a big Springsteen guy, was, prior to the divorce. But but I but I mean my kids you don't know the every word to every song you know but the Eagles were different. Well, they quit singing music with songs that you know in words that we could understand. <laughs> I mean, it, you kind of got into the eighties where it, where rock became just screaming into a microphone and 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 people after about four or five years the lead singer didn't have a voice yeah. left and mm-hmm. it just kind of rolled through a time. I mean, we had punk rock came through. Some crazy stuff happened. In the eighties, now there's some great music in the eighties, but you you had to look for it. It, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't everywhere. Some came back, and and then you know I don't know rap got in, and it became so vulgar. Look, we talk about the same things, except we flowered it up and dressed it up and, and made it a little nicer back in the seventies when we sang about a pretty woman, you know. And it, but then nowadays it's just so vulgar. You, you you're scared to you're scared to sing it because yeah. if you sing those words you yeah you know, and you're scared to listen to it with your kid I mean, you're a young kid in particular or you know getting our case a grandkid uh when you think about the the beach boys um i think about the back and forth 
you know, Beatles obviously are not an American band, but the Beatles and the Beach Boys had that back and forth. They were trying to one one up each other on those albums, and so they each influenced each other. And uh, and you've got to acknowledge the the Beach Boys influence. So the sure. Beach Boys CCR, and then we'll take a break, come back and do politics. So the Beach Boys CCR or the Eagles? You say the greatest rock and roll band from America is? I'd have to go to the Eagles, and and it's taking the big picture. You know, the Eagles maybe luckily to them played it perfectly they had all these hits and then they stepped away for a period of time that kind of left everybody wondering will they come back maybe not maybe so and they all had solo hits and that's right yeah, and the they, they yeah, went off they and did. showed their individual talents but then they came back on the unplugged and uh, when hell freezes over, over. Yeah. and that was incredibly successful now they've been on these tours for the last 20 so years so when you look at the whole body of work over the period of time and the success i think you have to go eagles philip well, it had to be Donny Osmond singing "Go Away, Little Girl." I believe. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a hit. It was a big hit. Uh, for me, obviously, the Eagles. I also am partial to what they call the corporate rock of the '70s. I mean, one of my favorite the bands, Sticks and Oreo Speedwagon, Boston, Boston. Yeah, you know those yeah. those bands are just my favorites. But but you, I, I think you would agree with this. There, there's something iconic about the the Beach Boys, the Eagles, and, and you're gonna get insulted when I say this. I mean, even Springsteen and Tom Petty, there's something about those guys that is different about the Boston or, or REO Speedwagon or Lover. I mean, what is the deal? I mean, you're in the business. You're in the industry. What it, the, Define for me the barrier or the wall or the line of demarcation between Tom Petty, um, CCR, Springsteen, those, those singer song or the 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 groups were led by singer songwriters, mm-hmm. and then you've got Boston, Ario, Speedwagon, Sticks. Well, and, and you're not and you call it corporate rock. Yeah. So Boston was created by a guy who wrote the songs and built the built the equipment to make the instruments sound the way he's he like a nuclear physicist right. or something. Right. So crazy he's a, song, like a singer songwriter, but I think it's a different type of song. Is kind of what you're pointing out. It's corporate rock. Yeah. And, very appealing to the masses. Right. To, okay. to, to sell music. Fair enough. Hey, we had a 20-minute conversation and accomplished absolutely nothing, <laughs> but that was the intent. Well, I had fun. I want I, These politicians appear to be, at times, robotic and and, and so just, just um, on edge about the issues they're dealing with. I wanted to do them a favor and humanize them for just a and, second. And we learned Philip likes Donny Osmond. So. <laughs> Go away. Oh, man, that's, that's hey, as, as your political advisor, stop that. Yeah. Stop, stop, stop that right now. I was in sixth grade. Philip told me my job when I sit next to him in the house is know when to pull him down. We'll apologize for that in the next segment. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937, Representative Jay Jordan, Representative Philip Lowe. We had a little bit of fun in the last segment talking about music. We'll have fun in the next hour talking about Gamecock and Tiger football. Well, the Tiger fans have fun. Gamecock fans are kind of conflicted right now about the status or state of their football program. It's a new week. Hey, but wait a year after next. <laughs> well, here we go. Yeah, wait wait we'll next. Hey, we had a lot of conversation yesterday about this charge, this Madrichitz situation, but I want to be careful not to talk all about negative news. I mean, it's not all bad in South Carolina. It's not all bad in America. Uh, conservative talk radio seems to highlight some of the um, some of the liberal wins and what the Republicans aren't doing and what we'd wish they'd do. I want to, I want to go down not not the the, the the blow smoke up my rear end road or the sunshine pumping road, but rather a practical, pragmatic look at our area, what its potential is, what its opportunities appear to be. And and where we're most optimistic. So I'll start with Philip here. And um, 
Representative Lowe, you've made a big commitment um, locally and at the state level to economic development. I mean, you've led me to believe that you were, I mean, I, I believe that you're one of the first political leaders to accept that we kind of have not performed as well as the state on average. And if we've not, we need to revisit what we're doing, make some corrections, make some commitments. And you have been largely responsible for coalescing a lot of different forces around the notion of economic development. Why are you encouraged and why should our listeners be optimistic? Well, I'll start at the state level. Uh, people are moving here and that's, that's helpful. That's bringing dollars in. Uh, we've got a, an additional billion dollars already that we're expected to have extra next year. That's good. Great money, especially in a recession uh, locally. You know, there was a vacuum created when Leatherman left. Uh, most of that stuff was held close to the vest. And a lot of things have to be when you're, you know, you're trying to nurture and get somebody to come in as a new industry. Um, but we put together a team, and that's really what it's about, is a team effort to, with all the levels of government and the philanthropic organizations and, uh, and appointed uh, Jay to, to be head of that, uh, the chairman of that committee. And we've pulled everybody together and said, hey, there's federal money, here's some state money, and the local money, and let's get on a team track here and work together, and, and I think we can accomplish something. How important is it? And, and Jay, I'll jump to you. You're the lawyer of the bunch. How yeah. important is it? Um, um, we did talk about crime and public safety and some of the issues. We appear to have a sheriff that's committed to addressing the criminal uh, issue. Um, Philip is leading the charge in committing state funds. Uh, toward economic development in our area, but but the big picture, and I'm talking about education and crime and local government and state government. Um, you're the chairman of that committee. Where where are we progressing, and where do we need to do much better? Well, I think I think Philip hit the nail on the head talking about that team kind of atmosphere and attitude. You know, uh, I give him a lot of credit when he became delegation chair. Um, he said, all right, we need to look at all, we need to take a look at what we're doing. What are we doing well and what are we not doing so well? Where are we, where have we seen success and where are we, where should we be, be seeing success? Well, maybe we haven't seen the success we should be seeing. And so getting everybody in that room from the end, uh, whether it's the folks that help you with on the energy side to the education folks, to the law enforcement, to, um, economic development, county, local, all the local leadership, getting all those folks, business leaders in the room together and, and saying, let's evaluate where we are. Let's see where, 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 what are some things we can work on and taking that model. And what we discovered in getting in that room and talking about it was we had a lot of things we were moving forward on in Florence for economic development, but there were some, each, each area, so to speak, had some shortfalls. And that put us in a position where Philip being on ways and means um, he could go and, and I helped sell it in my way as well. You know, we need money. We ultimately turned out we needed money for infrastructure, for some, for some gas and road and things like that. Uh, I have found in my time in Columbia, um, if you go up to Columbia and you're trying to uh, get money for, you know, candy store type stuff, you're going to have a hard time. But I can sell. I need money for infrastructure for my, my home for my, to grow business, to grow our community. And so I think that's helped us lay the foundation for economic development. Now, back to what I said about getting everybody at the table, recognizing our strengths and weaknesses, you know, getting everybody around saying, all right, we, how can I help you, Sheriff? You're doing everything you can to make this a safer community. How can we help? And that was another example of trying to get them funds for 
things like body cameras and things like that so that we can be part of trying to make their job as easy easier as easy as it can be because it's a tough job to begin with and doing that not just in that particular area but in education and all across the board do we have a call let's go to the phone somebody's there yep bobby in hartsville hello bobby you are on with your delegation yeah good morning guys i I do have a question uh, but first i want to say uh kim i don't believe the what you said about the divorce because after the uh Super Bowl commercial, you said the same thing. I'm divorcing him, and you went right back to him. Uh, Springsteen, so I'm not buying it. Bobby, I mean it this time. Damn it, I mean (laughs) it this time. I didn't really mean it last time. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. (laughs) I'm not sure of this, but does either one of you reps uh, represent parts of of Darlington County? I do, Philip. Yes. Okay. All right, here's my question. Uh, I went to the – I had some flooding issues, and I went to uh, my county council – meeting in September, and I had been working with uh, my county, uh, councilman, uh, Kurt Askins. He, he's just done a great job in addressing our issue out in the Pine Ridge community where we've got some flooding. But uh, the reason I went, they had uh, the South Carolina Office of Resilience was there to update on a study that the county paid for, watershed study. And uh, they introduced a buyout program where they would come in and buy out your property if you qualified. And they talked about how that that property could never be used again. You know, it could it would become a they used the words uh, phrase green space. It would be returned to a green space, and uh, maybe a garden or something like that. Trees could be planted, but uh, nothing else could be done to it. Um, I didn't. I'm not interested in that. I was interested in having the uh, construction, whatever whatever needs to be done in our area to to uh, fix the problem. And that is one of the options that they listed, but I hadn't heard a whole lot about what else they might do as far as coming in. So I'm I'm, I'm not sure about this whole program. I'm thinking, is it that more? Is it is it more uh, cost effective for them to buy people out than to just come in and put drainage in there? And uh, also, I, I, I understand this. Uh, the, the money's coming from HUD, and they use the words uh, green space. I'm wondering, is this any way related to the Green New Deal? or anything like that, and I'll take your comments off here. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate it. Bill? We saw considerable legislation coming uh, really from the beach down there, around Socastee, all that flooding they had a few years back. And, of course, we all had this flooding. Uh, flooding is a is a, a deeper issue than just too much rain. <laughs> Every ditch that's sitting there has sediment that flows into it. That means it gets shallower and shallower as it goes. It's got to be cleaned. Those ditches run along the side of the public easement. Then it travels usually through somebody's private easement. There's where we get in trouble. The state and the county doesn't have any right to go in and clean out the private person's ditch. But you can clean out the road, but if it doesn't drain from the private person to the small stream, to the big stream, and to the river, it's not going anywhere. Beavers have had an incredible comeback in the last 30, 40 years. They dam up those streams at every level, too. That traps sediment. And it makes it harder and harder. But, no, I'm not a big fan of going and buying out low-lying properties. It seems like we all just kind of have to realize that isn't going to work. But here's the deal. All the high-level properties have about been sold. You know, they, they're either farmed or they got a house on them. And uh, it, when people start making a subdivision, you need to go out there and look at it. What happens after a rain? Where does this go? And, and study the map to see where the low-lying areas are. Don't buy that house in the low-lying area. Philip, what can we do to encourage private landowners 
I mean, it's the watershed. I mean, the water runs a certain way. It runs across private land. The county and city doesn't have the responsibility or an obligation to do that. But how can we encourage, should we encourage private landowners um, in helping care for those ditches, you know, that, that allow the water to run where it's supposed to? You know, it becomes a private property, right? Most, a lot of ditches and a lot of streams, one half of it's owned by one landowner and one half owned by the other. Well, you got, both of them got to get together on this because you usually got to tear down trees before you can get to the ditch to clean the ditch out because they let the trees grow up and, and it's a, it's a complicated process to put all that together. The, the, all the willing landowners to get the water to drain, you can't just drain the road. That's really all the state's really responsible for is that road. But there is some money in the conservation districts to help work with these. So if you know an area that's frequently flooding, you're doing the right thing, going to your elected officials and and asking for help. But it's not an easy process. And I'll tell you this, it is very complicated. I mean, I've tried to study some of this Yadkin River Basin and, you know, the PD River Basin and all this. I mean, the water runs where God intended the water to run. You know, man has tried to manipulate that and distort that. We've done a, you know, a, 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 a... we, we, we've effectively developed developed property that may or may not should have been uh, developed. Well, I mean, New Orleans is a city built under sea level. So, you know, but but there, there was an intentional, uh, very, very intentional design by God in heaven, I think, uh, of where the water is supposed to run. We've impeded some of its progress. And, uh, and Philip's talking about the complication of the private landowner and, you know, what his responsibilities are and how government can encourage, I don't want to say incentivize, but encourage him to um, to take care of some of those relief points that allow the water uh, to run where it is. How much of a, this is kind of an issue, I mean, a weird question, but I'll ask it of you, Jay, to begin with. How challenging has the development and growth along the coast been to state government? You know, I, I think it has been. You know, we talk about the good things about South Carolina growing, and and that's absolutely true. Uh, we want a growing, prosperous state, and we're I believe we're headed in that direction. One of the fastest growing states in America. Correct. And a huge portion of that is what's happening on the coast. Now, I do think, and I'll go ahead and kind of veer off course for a second, that applies here too. You know, Florence, while Florence County has not grown at a tremendous rate, the area that I think most of us live in sitting around this table has grown significantly. The, the area that the I re, that I represent as a state representative um, grew substantially from 10 years ago to 10 years now. I think you can ride around and see a lot more people in traffic, a lot more neighborhoods that didn't exist. Uh, and so that is creating challenges that I'm assuming I know they're having down at the beach too. They're mo- mainly infrastructural challenges, uh, infrastructure challenges. I was thinking as Philip was discussing, you know, that part of um, – more rural kind of problem with that i deal with it from a different perspective i deal with it because neighborhoods are created on top of neighborhoods on the west side of town and that's creating flow of water at a higher volume than perhaps it was ever intended stormwater drainage correct and so i'm dealing with it from a little bit different perspective and and on top of that uh, i'm specifically thinking about the west side of town you're building neighborhoods on top of neighborhoods, and some of the original neighborhoods, their infrastructure is about time for it to deteriorate in some way, shape, or form. So it doesn't carry the flow quite like it was designed to even back then, much less now with the additional flow to it. So it's a similar problem, but a different logistical challenge. Philip, the, the complication of the Grand Strand, I want to get your take on this. If somebody is in the room when we appropriate funds, um, not only is the Grand Strand or the coast of South Carolina a fast-growing area, it generates an enormous amount of tourism revenue for the state. 
How does that involve itself in the conversation? In other words, when you allocate monies to build roads or improve roads or, or invest in infrastructure, not only are you investing in infrastructure that allows more and more people to um, live at the beach, you're also making it easier and and more accommodating for people to come here and spend, you know, their 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 vacations and a couple of weeks at the beach, spend a lot of money. I mean, the entire state benefits from that. So, so what what goes into that mindset of investing in infrastructure, not for just people who live in Ori, uh, Charleston, Georgetown, Beaufort counties, but but those who come there as tourists. The high growth areas will always lag behind in infrastructure. So if a thousand people move in and all of a sudden you say, hey, we need a new elementary school, it takes a couple of years to put it together, to get it on the ground. That's the price of growth. Is it, that fair? It is the price of growth. And you've Myrtle Beach is, is an incredible donor county. So we've got Explain that on, what people, when you say donor county. Well, some counties get more money back from state government than they actually contribute to state government. And Myrtle Beach and Ore County is, is the opposite of that. They donate the, all, all this extra money. It's not a true donation. It's, they raise the taxes and and income taxes, sales tax, both of those. Gas pays, tax. Gas yeah, tax. The gas tax that pays for other people's and other poorer counties' budgets. So infrastructure and growth is, is you get in places where they almost have to charge you to come there. So they charge developers a fee to help plug in some money into the infrastructure for sewer, for water, for roads, you know, the school systems and all that. Uh, Florence is a more stable growth. It's not that high, fast growth. But I'm telling you, don't believe all the gloom and doom. South Carolina is growing. Florence is growing. And we've got a lot of money we're putting in. We're going to solve some of this industry stuff. We're going to, soon we're going to have a whole lot more industries than we have people so we've got to get houses built we've got to stay keep our nose don't pull back too hard on the reins here thinking that growth is going to stop it's not going to stop in florence we live in a great area of this state and we're all going to prosper stay there for a second i want to hold you up we got a short segment on the other side got to take a break we'll be back in just a couple of minutes eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. i want to ask these two guys a question this is probably unfair but i'm gonna do it anyway because we let you talk music for 20 minutes so it's time <laughs> you earn you keep on wake up carolina so um, FedEx and UPS, I mean, I saw this number yesterday. This is a staggering number. At any given moment, on any given day, FedEx and UPS together have about 12% of the country's GDP in its planes and trucks. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a crazy, so, but when you think about it, you're like, okay, I mean, you know, a lot of planes, a lot of trucks, a lot of product going from point A to point B. Philip, I'll start with you. I've always felt, as someone who lives here, someone who has represented in a political capacity here, logistics is our future. I mean, we, we live in a place that two major interstates converge. It's a very shipping-oriented economy, Amazon and online shopping and, and e-commerce. Is, is that a place you think we should pay specific? I mean, obviously, we want everybody from everywhere. But, but should we focus somewhat more in, intensively toward those sorts of businesses? Well, we're halfway between New York and Miami, so we're situated on I-95, intersection of 20. We're in a perfect logistics spot. You know, I sit there and watch my wife, now that our last child has gone to school, and she just shops online all day long. She doesn't buy anything. You know, just, <laughs> uh, not, not, you know, like every minute she's sure. not buying, but she just researches, and, and it's just 
kind of like she's walking around holding hands with her friends in the store. She loves it. It's a way of life. It, it's changed. I, I met with the postmaster yesterday. She said the average route used to carry about 30 to 40 packages a day, and they're at 240 a day. That's the post office. Then that's, you know, UPS and FedEx is even, you know, way, way beyond that. Jay, I mean, should we formulate a plan, not, not specific to that, but making that as one of our priorities? You know, it comes back to competition. If there's one thing I figured out pretty quickly uh, once I got to Columbia and we was learning about economic development years ago, it was about we're in a competition. We're competing against maybe not every state in the union, but we're competing against Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee to try and grow industry. Uh, and we're going to have to put ourselves, as we have been, and as hopefully we will figure out better ways to do in the best possible position to win those competitions. And the way we do that is establishing, just like you said, you know, we, we might not be able to best compete in, for this particular industry, but we sure do fit well with this particular industry. And I think that's one of the things I talk with our new economic development director. I think he gets that um, and is not just taking advantage of that, but really getting aggressive in that. And, and Philip, as somebody who inspired this, this teamwork, I mean, you feel optimistic. I mean, you're encouraged about um, the, 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 the things that are happening behind the scenes. You know, when I listen to the national press and what the Democrats did to the national economy, I'm glad we're not running by them. We, we balance our budget. We're a poised for growth. And the money that's coming in now to repair those last couple things in our industry is going to take off. You heard it there, folks. Thanks to both of you, Jay Jordan, Philip Lowe. Um, I'll take it out on Jay later about my Beach Boys. I'm still a little bit upset. that I'm, I mean, I just knew there's no way anybody would come up with that. But I didn't know I'd have a savant in the uh, in the studio with us. Well, now you know. Yeah. And Philip texted me yesterday and said, um, I may not be there tomorrow morning. I got something to do, something about celebrating Passover. Uh yeah. How many birds passed over, Philip? Uh, I shot 15 <laughs> of them that passed over. He's never going to admit to killing more than the limit. I, I said, Passover? Okay, I get it now. I know it. Yeah, the birds pass over and he shoots them uh, down to the ground. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. She was storming through the house that day. I could tell she was leaving, and I thought, oh, she'll be back. Till she turned around and pointed at the wall and said, That picture from our honeymoon, that night in Frisco Bay, just give it away. She said, give it away. And that big four-poster king-size bed, where so much love was made, just give it away. Just give it away Just give it away There ain't nothing in this house worth fighting over Oh, and we're both tired of fighting anyway So just give it away 843-661-0937 We've dedicated this hour as our decompression hour we kind of sort of decompressed a little bit in the last hour with a representative jay jordan representative philip Lowe, uh senator rickenbaugh uh text rev and i said he couldn't come in this morning he was being or he's going to be out of town he called yesterday a little bit about some of the issue we have with magistrates and warrants and bonds and fentanyl and heroin and all these other um sorts of things i'm doing some investigative work believe it or not i have the capacity on rare moments or in rare moments all to right. do a little investigative 
I'm working. I'm doing my due diligence to make sure we properly and accurately report. I'm not doing what the mainstream media does. I ain't making it up. But I'm really trying to um trying to get to the bottom of an issue, and I and we'll be back next week and report to our listeners um exactly what we found out in relation to the issue we discussed at nauseum yesterday. Someone's on the phone. We've got Chris Clark from Gamecock Central. We'll have Jason Priester from um. Clemson, excuse me, Tiger Sports Illustrated in just a bit. But um, we've got a caller, I think, that wants to take exception with a number out throughout. And we're always welcoming, challenging calls. Mike in Florence, that's you. You're on. Hey, kid. Uh, hey, just, just don't really understand. You say at any given minute, UPS and, and uh, FedEx have 12% of our GDP. Fred, Fred Smith is quoted in the Wall Street Journal. Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx, he says that his exact quote, at any given moment, on any given day, UPS, our peer competitor, and FedEx, the company I founded, have in their possession about 12% of the entire country's GDP on its planes and, and trains and infrastructure. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, what about the, the, the logistic infrastructure of FedEx and UPS? Okay, Ken, that's 12% at any given time. If it takes them 44 days to deliver each of those, and they do it eight times a year, that's 100% of the GDP. That can't, number can't be right. I'm, I'm maybe 12% annually they handle. Not on, on any no. given moment, any, that's his quote. I, I, well, he's wrong. I mean, I, I didn't think y'all would catch that. But so, so you're saying that Fred Smith doesn't know what he's talking about, and he's lying to the Wall Street Journal. How can that possibly be true? Can you think of the numbers? 12%. You're great at math. If they've got 12%. I'm fair at math. Don't call me great. I'm fair at math. I'm not as good as Fred Smith is, but I'm fair at math. You're really good for a game, Kim. Well, I mean, no, no, no look, I'm, no, no, let, let, you, you will agree with this. I'm taking Fred Smith at his word because he's proven so far to and, be trustworthy. And it is a staggering statistic. It's no a very, when I read it, I said this morning at 6 o'clock, it is a staggering statistic, but that is what Fred Smith said in the Wall Street Journal, and I think he repeated it on CNBC because he's talking about the flashing lights, you know, the problems he sees in the economy. Um, their company is 30% less valuable than it was, you know, during the COVID epidemic and everybody's shopping online. And he says, I guess they, I mean, they compete with UPS, but I don't think they hate UPS. But but I, I agree it's a staggering number, but, but the guy founded yeah. FedEx and he has a reputation on Wall Street of being a straight shooter. That's what he said. But- but Ken, let me just ask this one. They see if this makes sense to you. If it's twelve percent, that's one eighth. Okay. So if, if FedEx handles a hundred percent of it, of all of our GDP, there's no car lots, no anything else. Everything comes through FedEx, and they do twelve percent at any given time. Well, you divide, like I say, that's one eighth. So eight, you divide three sixty five by eight, you get forty four days. That would be their average delivery time if they deliver a hundred percent of the GDP. That's just simple math to me. I could be wrong. Well, I mean, the, the, here's the way I look at it, Mike, and then we'll we'll kind of, I mean, I don't know that we're disagreeing. I mean, I'm taking Smith at his word, and you're questioning questioning his numbers. If the if the nation's GDP is cumulatively valued at about twenty two trillion dollars, what's twelve percent of twenty two trillion? Well, I mean, it, it would be, I mean, you know, ten percent of twenty two trillion would be two point two trillion, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we're yeah. talking about two point two trillion dollars of goods and merchandise in their possession on a given moment, on a given day. I mean, that's the way I would 
Uh, you know, but once again, I'm not great at math. I'm pretty good at math. No, but but 10% no, of a $22 trillion GDP would be $2.2 trillion. I guess the argument he's making is at any given moment, on any given day, UPS and FedEx have in their possession $2.2 trillion worth of material goods, uh, whatever the productive items of the American economy are. I understand that, but if you figure, how long do you think their average delivery time is? Five uh, days? I, I don't have any. No, I mean, I, I think two and a half, three days. Okay, so then every two and a half, three days, they deliver that much. So 365 divided by 2.5. But, but I think he's talking about it, it's perpetual. I mean, it's always, I mean, it, at any moment on any given day. He's not saying, I mean, obviously during peak and, and holiday shopping season, during COVID, there's a kind of a... I understand averages, but that'd be 146 times that two trillion you were talking about would put give them doing the whole thing. I, I, just the math doesn't work on that. I, I don't mean to take your time. Well, let me th- thank you, Mike, but I, I, don't, I don't thank you. Appreciate the call. I don't understand what his reasoning is. I mean, Mike's got me confused. I mean, I think he's trying to trying to be objective and honest, but but the way I interpret the math, and and forgive me for being, um, you know, a, a, a mere mortal. I mean, I'm not a financial genius by any stretch of the imagination, but. If they've got 12% of our nation's GDP in their possession on a given, at any given moment, on any given day, that seems to me he's arguing that in our possession, we have about $2.2 trillion worth of stuff that is trying to make its way through the American economy via UPS and FedEx. I mean, that's my interpretation. That's my analysis of what Fred Smith said. But, but Fred Smith's a lot of things. He's never been a liar. I mean, he's been wrong on some, some um, you know, things they've done at FedEx. He's been right on some things he d- he's done at FedEx. He's the founder of, of one of the um, iconic brands in American commerce. And, uh, and I'm just, I'm real hesitant to say, Fritz, Miss Line. I'm just not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Now, if there would have been, uh, you know, an attempt to say, Fred, explain that. I mean, that seems like a staggering number to me. The reason I wrote it down is because it was such a staggering right. um, number to me. 12% of the GDP and a $22 trillion economy that's a lot of stuff. I mean, that, that's a bunch of stuff where I come from. Um, and, he, and he also included UPS. And I think they are intense competitors, but I don't think there's a lot, a lot of animus between one company and another. Uh, anyway, that, that's, I, I appreciate the disagreement. And they're global. Sure, that they're a global company. And, um, you know, one, I'll give you an example real quick before we go to Chris. You know, one of the busiest airports in the world is in Alaska. You know why it's the busiest airport in the world? More takeoffs and landings. UPS and FedEx fuel there to make their Asian trips. I mean, I, I can't, I mean, I don't want to quote the math. I might call in and check me on it. Um, but it seems to me like every, I say that with a bit of tongue in cheek and sarcasm. Yeah. But but I read somewhere, because I read all the time to help enlighten the masses. I read somewhere that every one minute and 27 seconds, there's a FedEx plane, UPS plane landing or taking off at this airport in Alaska on its way to Asia to once again pick up stuff mm-hmm. or deliver stuff that doesn't come on, um, you know, your typical, uh, you know, into ports. And soon, via- soon to be, that's where the airplanes will stop to charge their batteries. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I want to pilot a plane across the Pacific or Atlantic Ocean um, with a solar Charging panel. Up. Yeah, I'd, I'd be real careful with that. Hey. Um, forget GPA, uh, GDP and UPS and FedEx. I mean, we got important things to talk about. Gamecock football, Tiger football around the corner. Um, Chris Clark is with us today. Chris had a real hard job last week in painting a positive, um, 
<laughs> a positive scenario of what was likely <laughs> to happen in Williams Bryce. We knew Georgia was damn good. I mean, we knew that they were elite, one of the better teams in the country. Some would argue maybe the best team in the country. This week is a little bit different. We got great, great weather. We've got a night game at Williams Bryce. We've got a team that we think the Gamecocks can have some success with. But Chris Clark of Gamecock Central knows much better than I do. So, Chris, give me a better report this Friday than you did last, my friend. Yeah, we, we tried to shoehorn something in there last week. And, um, <laughs> you know, we uh, all the scenarios that we discussed that would have to take place for South Carolina to spring a, a pretty monumental upset did not happen. Of, of course, the injury situation, uh, South Carolina was unable to get any turnovers, played poorly offensively, played poorly defensively, and, and Georgia certainly looks really good. And, look, that's a team. They're probably going to do that to a lot of teams. I mean, heck, they, they beat Oregon about the same. They beat Oregon 49-3 to in week one, and that Oregon team went on the next two weeks to beat someone 70-14 to in week two. And in week three, they beat a top-15 BYU team by three touchdowns, and it really wasn't that close. So Georgia appears to be really good, and South Carolina, you know, even on their own, they, they have some struggles. But they may get a reprieve the next couple weeks from, you know, a difficult beginning of this season with Charlotte and SC State coming to town. So with with the Charlotte game, the book on this team is offensively they may cause South Carolina some, some problems. There may be some grumbling in the stands uh, because Chris Reynolds, their quarterback, has a lot of experience. Uh, he's basically statistically their best player of all time. They, they have not had a, a program for a very long time, but he's he owns a bunch of their records. Um, he – he can throw it. He can navigate the pocket. And they've got some players offensively. Defensively, it's a it's a really good time for South Carolina to play a, a team like this. Charlotte has been very poor defensively, which is kind of the, the medicine that South Carolina needs right now, right? They Charlotte has struggled all year on that side of the ball. They, they won against Georgia State but still gave up 41 points. Um, they gave up 56 to Maryland. They gave up 41 to Bill and Mary, William and Mary, uh, and they gave up 43 to FAU. So this, this oppor- the opportunities there for the Gamecocks to go keep things simple, play, let their guys who are better athletes, more skilled, presumably, than their defenders, you know, go make some plays. Um, so they match up well just because Charlotte has struggled so much defensively, but they still have to go do it, and I think – a lot of people are rightfully in prove-it mode on this team, you know, especially offensively, because they've stayed healthy there, whereas they haven't on defense. Chris, is it fair to say that this South Carolina team is still searching for an identity? I mean, it, when, when I look offensively, and you and I have talked about this, I mean, I, I feel, feel like I understand the game of football to some degree, and it seems to mm-hmm. me that both offensively and defensively, they still don't know what they are or what they want to be. Is that is that fair criticism? I think it, it is much more so offensively. Defensively, um, you, you kind of know what they'd like to be. Um, they, they largely played pretty well against Georgia State, right? They gave up 14 points. It's pretty good. Were there too many explosive runs? Yeah. Arkansas, we know the story there. They missed way too many tackles, missed 21 tackles, gave up 154 yards after contact. That's not going to get it done. And then Georgia, you know, just pretty much made it look easy. And they were down about – you know, five starters or so and about seven or eight guys that, you know, would factor in defensively for that game. So kind of the perfect storm. 
uh, there's a lot to improve there, but you can at least kind of point to it and say, okay, th- th- this is an explanation, you know, in these first – in those in games two and three. Offensively, has been much more confusing. And I think, you know, identity can be overrated. I think, like, if if you're a team that's just really talented everywhere and you can run the ball and you can pass it and you can have the balance that way and you can have the balance of being able to distribute the ball to a lot of different playmakers, kind of like Georgia, right? You say, what is Georgia's identity? Well, they can do everything right now, you know, and they've been even better passing the football this year. I think that's ultimately where you want to go. But you do want to have some things that you can hang your hat on. And right now, we, we don't know what that is with this offense. Um, you know, we, we thought that it'd probably be the passing game this year with the guy, Spencer Rattler, that can make every throw and some some weapons at tight end and receiver, but it hasn't been that. It's kind of been like every week you go in wondering, you know, what it's going to look like, and you exit the game wondering why it looked like that. Um, so they got to figure some things out. These next couple weeks, I don't think – the only takeaway that there will be from the next couple of weeks is if they struggle, that that'll really tell the story. If they perform as they should against these teams, I still don't know that it means a lot for SEC play. It'll just kind of mean that they did what they were supposed to do um, because they're, they're going to be, you know, again, bigger, stronger, more skilled, faster, et cetera, than these teams the next couple of weeks. But you're exactly right. Um, they, every week is kind of the same questions, right? About why aren't these guys getting the ball and why are there so many turnovers and, uh, why do things just kind of look discombobulated? And that's what this coaching staff is going to have to figure out. And it's what the players are going to have to go execute. How much healthier is the team on defense this Saturday than last Saturday? Yeah, uh, it's to, to be determined. We know that uh, Darius Rush is going to be out. Um, so that's going to be, you know, we, we know that obviously they're down Mo Cobb and Jordan Strong already. And then we know Darius Rush is going to be out. And there are several other guys that they're kind of waiting on, you know, a, a Boogie Huntley, you know, for example, a Cam Smith. Those are the guys that they, they're they going to find out probably around game time. You know, Darius Rush and David Spalding, though, two DBs, uh, they're going to be out. Rush is a senior starter. Spalding is a guy who's played and started some in his career. But, you know, on defensive side of the ball, they're still beat up. Cam Smith, who's obviously one of the better corners in the country when he's healthy and out there. Boogie Huntley, who's a starter at D-tackle, R.J. Roderick, Devonnie Reed, who started at safety, Stone Blanton, who's a freshman linebacker who's played, that they're all beat up and, and still questionable for the game. So we really don't know as of Thursday night, Friday morning. Last question. Appreciate your time. Chris Clark of Gamecock Central with us. Um, the, the Gamecock Nation is really optimistic, and then the optimism begins to wane as the season progresses. But but I think we need to be honest, and I'm not. I mean, I'm 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 the the hell hacker. I mean, I'm always the guy that finds everything wrong with everything in the world. But but I think you've got to reflect for just a minute and and agree that we played at least one of the two best teams in America and another team that could be one of the ten or twelve best teams in America. That moment of reflection um, allows me to not jump in the deep end or not slip my wrist and give up on the season. Um, there's a lot in front of us. And a lot of things this team can accomplish if they can get some things fixed. Yeah, I think it, it can be both, right? I mean, in a world where we frequently don't want it to be a, a complex answer, we, we you know, can't see both sides of something. It can be both. You can meet in the middle of understanding the competition level, of understanding in the short term what's still ahead, 
in the long term what could still be ahead and you can and you can see some of the good in you know for instance recruiting and what Beamer's doing from a culture standpoint. You can recognize the injuries on defense, et cetera. You can do that, and that's very fair, and I think that's smart. But you can also look at the fact of okay, even with how they're recruiting and what they've got on the roster, they're still behind the Georgias and Clemson's and a bunch of other schools. And you can also say, hey, you recognize the competition level, but you need to be able to go and be more competitive offensively against Georgia. You need to go play better and be more competitive early against Arkansas. You need to be able to score, you know, a touchdown in more than half of the 16 games over the past two years in the first quarter. Both of those, all those things can be true. And so I certainly think it's it's way too early to to jump off the ship in the 2022 season or just overall uh, there's a, there's a lot of ball left to play, but there's a lot of things that, that need to improve for this team to have a solid type of season that they're capable of having, I think. Chris, last question. This is not about this weekend, but about this program. Um, and and I, I need to cliff note version. We've got about a minute, minute and a half here. How important is an investment in NIL? In other words, the teams that have committed to perform, excel um, at NIL, and those who have said, well, I mean, you know, we'll get there sooner or later. Um how important is that from your perspective? Critical. And I think when you start seeing, I'll try to be brief, When you, I can speak on this for a long time, when you start seeing uh, college coaches and administrations uh, putting their, you know, asking for money or businesses or companies, administrations putting their money where their mouth is, it shows, right? It is every bit as important or more important than facilities and things that have had millions of dollars spent on them. Bruce Pearl, one of the best recruiters in the country for basketball has said that they're holding off on facilities to make NIL investments. We've seen uh, another major university recently signed a deal with a company where some of the money is going to go towards NIL. We're seeing a lot of investment in this. So it's something that is an integral part of the recruiting process. If you don't make an investment in it, then you will fall behind. There's no doubt about it. And a lot of the schools that already have trophies and big brands and logos are the ones on the forefront, which makes it even more difficult. So it's it's critical, just like facilities and everything else for schools that want to compete. Yeah, I think it's actually jumped the facilities. I mean, there was a day, you know, the, the oh, improvements yeah. and all these others. I mean, I, I believe, as you do, I mean, if you're going to invest in the success of USC football, you need to be supportive of the NIL. I mean, I, I believe that with every fiber of my being. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate your time. Appreciate you having me, guys. Absolutely. Chris Clark, Gamecock Central. Coming up, Jason Priester of um, Clemson Tiger Sports Illustrated. I think it's uh, allclemson.com, if I'm not mistaken. I want to make sure we get that right. But Jason will be with us in just a couple of minutes to preview the Clemson-Wake Forest game this Saturday. So as a Gamecock fan, I'm celebrating the fact that we aren't playing Georgia. <laughs> Somebody said, right. who are you playing? I said, not Georgia. Um, Georgia's a really, really, really good team. And as Chris said, as a Gamecock fan and the internal optimist, you try to shoehorn something in there, but you know you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Um, Clemson, to me, has to be careful this week. Jason Priester with allclemson.com is with us this morning. Um, Clemson is better talented than West, excuse me, than uh, Wake Forest. They'll probably have as equal number of fans in Winston-Salem as Wake Forest. But Wake Forest seems to me, Jason, to be the consummate overachiever and a team that the Tigers need to be kind of sort of careful with? What do you say about that? Oh, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. It's kind of amazing what Dave Clawson has done there, you know, the success they've had over the past few years. Um, 
it's been fun watching Sam Hartman grow into the quarterback that he's become, and, and he's pretty dang good. I mean, let's be honest. Jason, Clemson's, a- I'm sorry, Clemson struggled a little bit the first half last week, but they got on track. Did they find something? Did they catch some breaks? Um, they just looked like a different team in the second half than the first. Yeah, I thought they came out with a different energy level in that second half. You know, they 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 stayed bogged down most of the first half, particularly on offense. Um, and they found some stuff that started working in the second half. We'll see if they can carry that momentum over with them to Wake Forest this weekend because they're going to need it because that Wake Forest team they can score points. So Clemson's going to have to put some points on the scoreboard, no doubt. Is the is the problems on or are the problems on offense centered around inconsistent quarterback play, or are there some other issues they got to clean up? Um, I would point more towards the offensive line. Um, if I don't think DJ Uyunglele's actually played all that terribly for the most part. I, I think he's making good decisions with the football. You know, for the most part, there's there's been some throws I'm sure he'd like to have back, but um, he needs more help from his wide receivers, and that offensive line needs to be more consistent. I, I thought they probably played their best half of football. Uh, against Louisiana Tech in that second half Saturday night. They they really started to open up some running lanes, and they were getting into the second level, and they were pass protecting much better. And, and that's something we had not seen, you know, prior to that. Do you expect Wake Forest to throw the ball a lot? Are they balanced? I mean, you talked about the development of the quarterback, one of, one of the better quarterbacks in America, in all honesty. What do you expect from the Demon Deacons on offense and trying to attack a world-class Clemson defense? You know, they like to throw the ball down the field, but but it all develops off of that that slow developing mesh play that they like to run. You know, Hartman he'll he'll put that ball in the belly of that running back and he'll hold it there and he'll hold it there and hold it hold it hold it as long as he possibly can, and that's something that just has not been successful against this Clemson defense. Um, they they tend to play very disciplined against this Wake Forest offense. Um, they they. You know, nobody has a lot of success running the ball, and it tends to lead to Hartman making rush decisions, and he doesn't have his best games against Clemson, typically in the past. Not saying, you know, that won't change this weekend, but that's typically the way these games have played out Played out the last couple of years. If you're Clemson and you're accustomed to playing in front of 80,000 fans or 80-plus thousand fans, you played in multiple national championship games. You played in the playoffs year after year after year. That's the measuring stick. Uh, that that's what you expect to you know as you begin the season. That that's your expectation of where to end up. But you go to Little Winston Salem. You go to Little Wake Forest, and uh, you know the small. Is there something about that stadium that complicates the matters even more? A good friend of mine, Thomas Hunter, played at Clemson, and Thomas says some of those stadiums will lull you to sleep. Could that be a factor? I I think it probably could be. Add in the fact that it's a noon game, you know. You, I mean, it definitely could be. You know, it's it's hard to say either way, but I wouldn't rule it out because because it, it, those Wake Forest crowds, you know, I've been there before when that place has been jumping, and I've been there before when it's been dead. So you never know what you're going to get. Has Clemson established? I mean, is Clemson where you thought they would be at this point of the season? What have they impressed you with? What are some things? I mean, you talked about the offensive line struggle. Uh, kind of go into a little bit more detail about some things you see you like and a few things you see that you don't. I thought 
when the season started that the offense, especially coming off the way it was last year that and a new offensive coordinator, I thought it might would be a work in progress and it would have to kind of build over the first few games. And I think that's what we've seen has kind of been a work in progress, some inconsistencies. But I think they did play their best half of football on Saturday night. Um, and you're going to Winston-Salem playing against the Wake Forest team that, that get, just gave up a lot of yards and a lot of points to Liberty. Probably could have easily lost that ball game. Liberty probably beat themselves more than Wake beat them. But um, I think the offense is about where I expected it to be. Um, I, I might have had it being a little bit more consistent by now, but you know, it's it's about where I expected overall. But the, but the biggest concern to me is on the back end of the defense. You know, the pass defense it, it has been pretty bad at times. Clemson's given up a bunch of explosive plays, far more than they typically do. I think I think they're averaging about three per game when they usually only average about two per game. That's a pretty big difference in my opinion. Notice they're playing a lot of cover three so far this year, something they didn't do a lot of with Brent Venables. Seems like Wes Goodman's kind of putting his fingerprints on this defense, and and the defensive backs are kind of struggling to make that adjustment so far. So do you think that's an adjustment? I mean, is that scheme-related? I mean, it's not personnel-related. So Clemson has – they recruited elite. They have really good players on defense. So, so are you saying that by Venables not being there, the new D.C. trying to personalize the system – to, to, you know, to what he believes. I mean, co- coaches don't clone one another. Doesn't matter how much of an understudy you may be or not. Um, but but you, you just think this is a kind of a work in progress. The Venables model was X. This is a little bit different. Yeah, I, I do believe that. And I'm not the biggest X's and O's guys. You know, I can't break down every play. But, I, you know, I had been told that this is not the actual same scheme Venables is run, was running. We saw a lot of odd fronts. Last week against um, Louisiana Tech, I suspect we might see some more this weekend. We didn't see a whole lot of that with Venables, and we, like I said earlier, we did not see very much cover three at all. Jason, having said that, last question uh, before we get to what I what you're going to predict for this Saturday. Um, the continuity of staff is always a big deal. I mean, when coaches leave, you got to replace. It's new. It's unknown. You wonder whether it's going to going to work or not. Has the has the lack of a, a Venables and a and a Tony Elliott has that been as problematic as you thought it would be, or has has Clemson uh, the, the the coaches and Dabo in particular have they kind of smoothed that out as well as you would hoped and and thought they would? Yeah, I think the transition's been kind of probably about as smooth as it could have went. Um, you know, he he hired all those guys from within; they've been there forever. Um, it's not like you're bringing an outsider, so to speak, in who, who hasn't been around the program and know how to do things. So, yeah, I think that that transition has been fairly smooth. I, I, ha- I haven't seen or heard of any problems or any issues. You know, I just think maybe on the defensive side of the ball a little bit, there, there's been some growing pains with, with getting accustomed to a new, a little bit of a new scheme. Right, last question. What happens this Saturday at noon at Winston-Salem? Yeah, I tend to think this is just a perfect matchup for Clemson, what Wake Forest does on offense. And it's not a knock on Wake. I just think Clemson's defensive front, especially that front seven, it's just so talented, has so much speed. You know, what Wake does on offense just kind of plays right into the hands um, of what Clemson does on defense. I, 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 
I think Clemson wins and covers. I, I think I got about 34 to 20. Does the line surprise you that, that Wake is only a seven-point underdog? It actually did. I was expecting it to be about 10, 10 and a half points. I, I was definitely a little surprised when the line came out, no doubt. What do you think the wise guys see? I mean, you and I see certain things. They see other things. They're in it for the money. They're not a fan of either of either team. What do you suspect they see to, to make it a one-score line? Yeah, they um, probably see that back end of that defense and the way <laughs> teams have been passing on Clemson this year. But, yeah, they don't get it wrong too often, do they? they, they, they yeah, Las Vegas did get built by losing money. I can assure you of that. Jason, thank you for your time, man. Appreciate you. Hey. Hey, thanks, Ken. Absolutely. I think this is kind of a neat feature we do on Saturdays now. During football season, uh, we won't have, you know, the basketball coaches on. We won't have the baseball coaches. But this is a very football-passionate state, two very passionate fan bases. And um, and I felt it, and, and Rev kind of blessed it, it appropriate to reach out to a, a Clemson insider and a Gamecock insider. And um, just another added element to yeah. the you know, expected radio brilliance of Wake Up Carolina <laughs> or morning. Unexpected. Or unexpected. There you go. Somebody on the phone. Yeah. Let's go to the call, then we'll take our last break. Ben in Florence been on hold for a little while. Hey, Ben. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, uh, Ken, Dave, question for both of you. Yes, sir. Uh, so, it was a few weeks ago, I think, in one of the papers, you know, the, during the open season, the hunt gators in Santee, you know, they caught two, two 13-foot gators. And then earlier in the summer, you know, we had some shark attacks in Myrtle Beach. So the question is, and it's a really important question here, uh, which one do, would you rather face if you had to head your demise, a gator or a shark? Oh, I'd rather fight a shark on land. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ben. And, that's and, a, and that was fast. That's that's a, that was a good response. That's a Thank damn no-brainer. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to fight a gator on land or uh, in the water. I'll take my chances with a shark on land. I'll just wait him out. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, he's not going to chase you too fast. I mean, I don't think he will. And eventually, I mean, I don't have to throw a punch at a shark on land. But, but I've been seeing these pictures of these gators they were pulling out of the Santee. Wow. I mean, they look like prehistoric monsters. Look at Freehold. That's, that's, Freehold has had a personal and close yeah. encounter w- with a gator. I'm done with gators for, for a lifetime. I'm done. Well, I mean, if you think about it, guys, we t- Philip and Jay talked a lot about the growth along the coast. Well, I mean, the, the gators were there long before we got there, right? I mean, when you build sure, a neighborhood and you say, these alligators are taking over my neighborhood. No, you built the neighborhood in the alligator's natural domain. I mean, the, the, you know, and, and, and some of these rivers and, and, and lakes and whatnot, I mean, some of these animals look prehistoric. I, mean, they, well, I guess true. they are to some degree. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, a, a gator... I mean, a gator can, I mean, he's ambidextrous, right? I mean, he sees bad news on water or, or land. <laughs> I said that I on purpose. Run, run, I mean, stick with me. Right I, I know the difference in ambidextrous yeah. and amphibious. But um, <laughs> every time I say that, I mean, every time I say ambidextrous or amphibious, I think of my buddy. And I've told this story 50 times over the radio, and it's always funny to me. Uh, I had a buddy of mine who took, I mean, I take liberties with the English language. <laughs> he took more than I did. And I do a little research. I mean, I, you know. I know what amphibious means, and I know what ambidextrous means. I get that. But my buddy, his wife was pregnant, and we played a lot of slow-pitch softball. And I don't know, we had a game one weekend, and he said, and we talked about next weekend, are you going to be there? He said, I can't be there next weekend, man. Uh, The doctor's seducing my wife Friday morning. (laughs) And I said, dude, I think you got the wrong word, man. Your doctor's not going to seduce your wife. That's bad news for you and your marriage. 
if the doctor said, I think you mean induce. induce. He said, oh, hell no. She, I mean, she's getting sedu- she's getting seduced at 1045 <laughs> on, on Friday, and I won't be there for this weekend's uh, softball tournament. I, I just, I, he's, he's passed away now. He died tragically in, in a car accident. But I, there, there are certain things you ride down the road, and if you don't br- believe the brain's powerful, it will just pick things out of the clear blue sky and put them front and center. And that every now and then, I guess in my rotation, gets front and center, and I always laugh. I all if it, if I'm by myself, if I'm telling the story, to free, I always That's a classic. laugh. No question about it. Yeah, amphibious and ambidextrous are not the same thing. Seduce and induce are not are not the same thing. I just want to let you know I wrote this down when we had the Clemson guy on. Uh, I love your southernisms, but he had a great one. Uh, it, he said, uh, might would be, <laughs> might would be, might, might would be. be. Yeah. That's perfectly it, appropriate. All, that's close to my Perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> might would be, <laughs> might, might would be scared of an alligator. <laughs> right. Take a break. Back in a minute. Man called Fred Smith a liar. <laughs> <laughs> All of these things are, I mean, it's fun to do this. I mean, we have these interactions and, uh, you know, I'd rather find a shark on land. I mean, where do you get that content from other than th- this crazy attempt at Radio Brigitte? It's, just, it's, it's not a feeble attempt this hour. It's been a crazy attempt at Radio Brigitte. It's got a trivia question right around the corner. Got a call. Let's go there real quick. Yeah. Uh, Cocky Mike, have about a minute here before we have to do our trivia. Hey, guys. Uh, let me do Hey, John. Answer that guy's FedEx UPS uh, dilemma. Let's say on Tuesday morning they have 10 million packages in their possession, which counts to 12% of our gross domestic product. They send the trucks out and they deliver 2 million packages. So at the end of Tuesday afternoon, how many packages do they have now? Eight? Wrong. They deliver two, but they pick up another two to be delivered, and that cycle happens every day. So he was trying day to day to day, and, and that's not the way it works. No, it's, it's perpetual. I mean, it's never ending. It's, you know, you deliver and you pick up. You deliver and you – there are always packages working their way through the system. That's right. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. And, yeah, I mean, you know, a package starts and ends, and then another – while this one ends, another one's starting. I mean, it's always th- – there's a video on YouTube, Overnight Shipping. I mean, go, go to that video and just watch it. It's amazing how many – Packages are being shipped all over the world while we're asleep every single night. Mm-hmm. How many planes and trains and buses and, and trucks UPS and FedEx has flying from sea to shining? Well, really from, you know, all over the world. All over the globe. Uh, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's really hard to believe how they do what it is um, they do. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia contest. Brought to you and sponsored by Pepsi of Florence. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. We talked about... Some of the great rock bands. We had some fun this morning with CCR. Uh, are they the greatest American rock band ever? Here's what I want to say. They've influenced Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. They influenced Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. They influenced Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Who was the lead man? Who was the lead man, the front man, for Credence Clearwater Revival? 843-661-0937. Uh, he wrote all the anyway. Uh, who is the, the, the? It was CCR. It wasn't blankety blank and CCR, as is Tom Petty, the Heartbreakers, right. Springsteen, of the E Street Band. Who was the the front man, the lead singer for Credence Clearwater Revival? Eight four three 
661-0937. First caller wins a six-pack of Pepsi product and a couple of Takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. Let's go to the phone. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? No, I don't, but uh, maybe they were using Trump's math. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Yeah, Dan Fogarty. Nope, you're close. close. Not quite. 843-661-0937. Maybe we have enough time. Maybe don't. One last call. Do we get it? Hey, enjoy your weekend. Keep calling. There's an answer out there somewhere. You're on real quick. You know the answer? John Fogarty. You're right. You're right. Who is this and where are you calling from? Orangeburg. Okay. Hang on a second. We'll get you to free all. Enjoy your weekend, folks.